episode 214, Hotshot Scott. 214. What does that mean to you? 214 was my sophomore in high school weight. I thought you were going to tell me. That's what that means to me. (laughs) I thought you were going to say your GPA. Oh, I would have been proud of that. Holy crap. I would have been. One for area code of what city in the United States? We went through 212 with New York. You got that. We went with 213. You got that. You should know 214. Big city in the United States. Okay. Well, if if New York's 212, then it's got to be right next to a 214 because I'm sure that's how it works. No, it it doesn't work that way. um, It's Miami. Home of. No. 305. Home (laughs) of South Fork Ranch. Home of the Ewings. Ah, yes. Home of Jacques and Miss Ellie and their sons, JR and Bobby, and JR's wife, Sue Ellen, and Bobby's bride, Pam. And the how many people watched Who Shot JR? Hot shot. Oh, how many millions of people? I'll give you a hint. This is your stump the band question to start episode 214. Anything to not talk about the Seattle Seahawks trip to Germany for a few minutes? (laughs) Please. I'll give you a hint. Your stump the band is it was, I believe, the most watched TV show, regular TV show, not like not Super Bowls, not special TV show ever at the time. And 76% of all TVs that were on on that Friday night. We're watching Who Shot JR. How many millions of people do you think we're watching? Play it home, everybody. Play it home. What's your guess? Boy, 76%. You know, Milton Burrow in the Texaco Theater used to get around 83%. So he's not impressed, first of all, okay? Um, now, this is the episode where you find out who shot him, right? Correct. Not the one where he got shot. Correct. Okay. Correct. Oh, my God. And, I'll, and, I'll, and, uh, I'll, and I'll, give you, I'll give you a little. This is way too much minutia. We're already losing people on episode <laughs> 214. But I actually find this pretty interesting. He got shot on the cliffhanger episode of one season, which is obvious. He gets shot, yep. and then they go to they go to break for several months. So you have to wait the entire off season. I'm treating this like a, a football season. Then you got to come back and find out who shot it. But it was such a huge secret that the producers of Dallas didn't even want the actors and actresses to know in case they would huh. go on like the Johnny Carson show or whatever. They didn't want them to spill yeah. the beans. So the producers, when they shot the episode of Who Shot JR, had every one of the main characters film shooting JR, if if that makes sense. So they had no idea which one was going to actually be placed into the show at the time. Because it's every like a firing character. squad, right? Where you know one one has the bullet and the rest have blanks. That's exact. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and <laughs> sort, sort of, sort of, yeah. yeah. But they all came in and they shot the scene where they shot Jr. So that nobody knew who actually shot Jr. Until it was aired to 83 million people. Wow, 83 million people. And the answer to the trivia question of who shot Jr. is really not important. The character's not important. Kristen, but the actress, it's interesting, the actress was Mary Crosby, who was the daughter of the late, great Bing Crosby. Oh, Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby, who I thought was a great dad, but he's got a daughter that shot J.R. Ewing, so what the hell's <laughs> going on there? <laughs> Mr. Christmas had a daughter that was a murderer? Yeah, or an attempted Jeez. murderer. He let, don't forget, J.R. survived. He didn't die. Yes, of course. Okay, that's okay. true. He didn't die. He didn't yeah, die. yeah. So By the way, the old South Fork Ranch is like a it's like an event center. I think oh. you can rent it out and you could stay there. Are you kidding? I've been there 34 times. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Bing Crosby, born in 
Tacoma, Washington. I thought How about Spokane. That? Why did I think Spokane, Washington? No, that's not right. Maybe maybe he lived there, but he was born in Tacoma, so maybe he like grew up I in that Spokane was... or something. Anyway, Mitch yeah. Unfield, uh, how's everybody enjoying 214 so far? Uh, Mitch <laughs> Unfield, <laughs> by the way, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the South Fork Ranch online. I, I don't think it's quite as massive as we thought it was in 1981. Oh, don't it's, tell me that. It's a substantial house. I mean, don't get me wrong, but compared to some of the crap we've seen like in L.A. and some of these enormous mansions, you might be a little, don't spoil a little dissatisfied. Hot shot, don't spoil <laughs> It, please. Okay, fine. Don't it's the greatest house it, of all time. Yes. Mitch Unfiltered is available on all major podcast platforms, which are probably all canceling right now after that first <laughs> segment on Dallas. Rate and review yeah. us on the Apple Podcast oh page. It really helps with booking guests. We got some good guests. Become a Mitch Unfiltered patron for $5 a month. Please have access to all the bonus shows. And I know that a lot of you enjoy Mr. Playoffs this time of the year. Well, we moved it off of the main show because. Because Hotshot can't stay with me, Mr. Playoffs. We've moved it to the Slickhawk show. So on Friday mornings on the Shoot and the Shit show with Slickhawk for patrons, you get the full-fledged Mr. Yes. Playoffs and you get the tail of the tape. So we got we got that going for us, which is nice, Hotshot. Let Slickhawk do the heavy lifting on that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so my first question, and I really don't want to get too far into it in the T section, is when will the NFL stop pretending? And I know I'm going to come across, and I don't give a shit, I'm going to come across as a as a stubborn, bitter Seahawks fan, which I guess I am. And I guess you'll tell me that if the Seahawks won in Germany on Sunday that I wouldn't be doing this, but I would be. When is the NFL going to just take their dollar sign glasses off and realize that these international NFL games, they're terrible. Yeah. Everything about these games suck. It doesn't matter whether they're in London it doesn't matter whether they're in Germany or Munich. I don't care where they are. They could be in Sweden, for God's sake. They could be in Tel Aviv, Israel. They suck. The field conditions are terrible. The announcers are terrible. The quality of the play is never good. It's never a good game. The broadcast quality is terrible. Am I wrong about this? Did you sit around at 630 in the Pacific time zone and watch this shit or not? It definitely feels like a different game. And in fact, when they won last week to Seahawks, and, and then I was reminded, that they're going to Germany the following week. I remember thinking, what a crappy time. I mean, they got so much momentum. Why do we need this, this novelty game thrown right in the middle of the season? If you want to do preseason, that's one thing. But yeah, it just doesn't feel like, and again, I'm going to sound like a bitter loser too, which I am, yeah. but it just feels like a different game than a regular NFL game. To it me. does. Of course it does. And the field, how about the field? How about how yeah. dangerous the field is? It took two play on the very opening kickoff of the game. The guy slipped at the goal line, and I said to myself, oh, my God, I don't care if it's great it's for grass. soccer. Okay, <laughs> right. I don't care if it's great for soccer. There are good grass fields. There are crappy grass fields. Yeah. Every time I watch the London game and now the Munich game, the fields are always inferior. I can't even believe that Roger Goodell and the NFL owners put up with fields like this. Now, of course, the, do the almighty dollar. Let's put the games on in Germany. Let's put the games on in London. How many times did you watch the broadcast with the sound? Yes. How many times did the broadcast crew bring up, at least for conversation, that this is a questionable field in Munich? How many times? You know no, I don't answer? know the exact answer. <laughs> the answer is zero. Yeah. <laughs> zero. Yeah. The NFL well, Network guys yeah. never actually had a conversation that I, that I heard. Maybe you heard. Where they said, where they talked about the quality of the playing field, you couldn't avoid this being one of the main storylines of the game. And the NFL Network announcers, as if they were told, 
I'll go to my grave believing this. Yeah. They were told before the game, please don't harp on the field. The field sucks. Let's not talk about it. Clearly, somebody got to them from some league official and told them that they are not to focus on the quality of the field and how it was impacting the performance of the play and the injury situation. There's no question. There's no question that they were they were told that because no they question. want everyone to think that it's that the product is just the same. So, right. yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. And then but you, if got, you look at like. Yeah. Oh, sorry. But if you look at like Lionel Messi, for instance, he's 148 pounds. OK. Uh, Neymar, 150 pounds. I mean, you're talking about 280 pound men who can run four five forties. I mean, isn't is that part of it that they're just heavier and stronger and just can tear this grass up more? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, guessing why don't soccer players have trouble on it? Is I, what I'm wondering. Well, I'm sure soccer players have some trouble, but I, I, I'm imagining somebody who plays soccer is yelling at their podcast right now since they haven't turned it off after the Dallas conversation. Um, that they're yelling <laughs> that it's just a different game. Soccer yeah. is a different game. Think about Kenneth Walker. Think about the way he runs, the yeah. way he jukes, the way right. he the way he jump stops. That field completely neutralized. The one guy that I would say that was more impacted by that field than anybody on either team was Seahawks rookie running back Kenneth Walker. There was no way he could be himself on that field. It's like when you see a snowy game, how everyone right. just looks like they're running in slow motion. It just, right. it just evens everybody out. But yeah, if, if he's not explosive, he's nothing. Awful. Beat the Boys yeah. presented by Fireside Home Solutions. We've got weekend number 11 coming up. We're now through 10 weeks in the National Football League. Your week 11 games are as follows. Thank you, Fireside Home Solutions. Jets at Patriots, Cowboys at Vikings, Chiefs at Chargers, and the password, Ewing. E-W-I-N-G. E-W-I-N-G, all lowercase. Guests on this episode, 214, best-selling author Jeff Perlman. Do you know Jeff Perlman? You know that name at all? It Probably sounds not. very familiar. Ten books, all on sports. The Lakers, he did on their dynasty. He did the 86 Mets. He did Walter Payton, a book on Brett Favre. His mm. latest is a fascinating biography of the greatest athlete of your generation, Hotshot. Who is the greatest athlete you ever saw play in sports in your lifetime? For me personally, it's Bo Jackson. And that's what the book is about. A biography really? of Bo Jackson. That's exactly right. Oh, so up my alley. Je I, I couldn't be a bigger fan. Love well, it. you won't like it when you hear Jeff Perlman on his interview with me as he's promoting the book about Bo Jackson say that Bo owned Seattle. Because of the uh, Bosworth play. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to disagree on that. Because of the long run down the sidelines. He went all the way to Tacoma, I think is what right. Al Michael said. And there <laughs> yeah. was something else. There was a rifle. There was a, a oh, throw God. in the kingdom was to nail Harold Reynolds, Woo. I think, at third base, right? You're right. Yep. Harold yeah. couldn't believe it. He slams his <laughs> his batting helmet to the ground. And right. a rumor, rumor has it that he sat in the locker room after the game and just kept watching that play over and over. He could not believe he got thrown out. So best-selling author Jeff Perlman wrote this biography on Bo Jackson. He interviewed over 720 people for this book. One of the people, one of the 720, none other than Steve Sandmeyer was an interview subject for this book. He didn't make the pages. According to Steve, I asked Steve, I reached out to him. He said he didn't make the cut. But Steve Sandmeyer used to tell me a story when he co-hosted with me in the mornings on KJR about Bo Jackson. Every time he came with the Royals or when he came baseball, he'd have the Bat Boys, of which Steve Sandmeyer was one of them. Stand on second base. 
Bo Jackson would go back to the right field foul pole. He'd put Steve Sandmeyer at second base and he'd say, go, and he'd race him to the left field foul pole. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. And Sandmeyer said that he'd get to about 15 or 20 feet or 20 yards from the left field foul pole and all of a sudden just going oh. by him like a like a Maserati going by him yeah, yeah. all the way from the right field. And so Jeff Perlman actually interviewed Steve Sandmeyer for the book. I thought that was interesting, but he didn't make the cut. That's incredible. Yeah. I didn't First of all, I didn't know Steve was a bat boy, but that that's that story is just I just love that Bo is out there running as fast as he can. He's probably got a game to play. Yeah. He doesn't care. Let's let's go race the Bat Boys. But I would do anything to see him in his prime fly by me and just to get a feel for that speed. He was the most unbelievable football running back I've ever seen. And had he stayed healthy, it wouldn't even be close as to who was the best running back of all time. Well, I think you'll find it very interesting. The 20 minutes that I spent with Jeff Perlman on his 10th book, New York Times bestselling author on Bo Jackson, the Seahawks no table, Brady and Joe and me, Rick Neuheisel, the regular CBS college football analyst. We'll talk a lot about that Washington-Oregon game late Saturday night, which was amazing. How fun was that? Absolutely amazing. So episode 214, I promise no more Dallas, no more Dallas references <laughs> on episode 214. There's there's podcasts that talk about 80s TV who don't didn't go as in-depth as you just did on Dallas in, the, in this Fakakta segment. Jeez. So our second Stump the Band trivia of episode 214, where in the Northwest did Mitch have Thanksgiving Day dinner last year? Answer, not at home. Daniel's Broiler Bellevue. It was fantastic. I'm not sure if there's any space available at any of the four locations on Daniel's biggest day of the year, but try him, danielsbroiler.com, for more information. Fireside Home Solutions, the title sponsor of the Beat the Boys competition, Week 11 Password, Ewing. Have you given any thought to a new fireplace unit for the winter? Up to $300 off gas fireplace inserts right now at Fireside, firesidehomesolutions.com. The Kirkland Office of Cross Country Mortgage and Jordan Flowers moving. I'm ready almost to tell you where. Obviously, a very weird time when it comes to borrowing money, buying and selling homes. Jordan's team has the answers. 425-890-2957. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement, planning, taxes, and investments under one roof, evergreengk.com, more than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. Zeke's Pizza, new locations popping up all over the place, including Boise, Idaho, believe it or not. Fun football viewing, pre- and post-game Kraken celebrations at the Belltown location. Download the Zeke's Pizza app today, homegrown in the Northwest. Episode... 214, despite the poor performance in Munich, Germany. And it begins right now. Unfiltered. Here we sit on a Wednesday late night, and your doggies have a chance to waltz right in with their Northwest Champion t shirts. Check it off the list to just, just ruin the whole season. 
for your hated rival, the Oregon Ducks. Unfiltered. When Kurt Warner burst onto the scene was great, it wasn't like you said, oh my God, you know, he was so bad in Green Bay, or he was, remember the six <laughs> games that he started and so and so? There was not, I mean, G- in Gino's case, there was no reason to believe anything other than he is at best a backup quarterback. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 214, 214. No more Dallas references. Now officially underway, Hachaska. That's right. We're going to go into Dynasty next. But did you see the size of the cups of beer at the game in Germany? They were like small pitchers that these guys were holding. That part looked awesome. The rest of it sucked, but... The beer steins that were like plastic, but they were enormous in Germany. Man, that was I was kind of envious of that at 7 a.m. Wouldn't you expect that from Germany? Yeah, of course you would. I mean, yeah, you know, Oktoberfest and, you know, all that. But I just yeah, I mean, you just think about all the rules and regulations at stadiums and our, you know, you can't even bring a beer to your seat at concerts in some venues and. God, Germany, who cares? Here's here's a 55-gallon uh, drum of beer. Just take it to your seat, and here's a couple straws. What do we want to do with this result? I was on the East Coast when I watched it. A part of me thought, you know what? Let's just toss this out the window. They're 6-4 and four now. They lost. It was ugly, although they did come back in the second half. They made a kind of a valiant comeback, and Gino yeah. got on track, and that was pretty nice to see him make a game out of it at the end, but... My gut feeling is that we should all just throw this out and call it an aberration, call it extenuating circumstances, call it Germany and the field and just the situation and not overreact to this game. We can dissect it, happy to dissect it, but I think for my well-being, my mental well-being, I don't want to overanalyze what we saw early Sunday morning Pacific time in Munich, Germany. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, do you remember, you know, you, you, we love to go over the schedule when it comes out and yes. talk about, you know, they're gonna, did we have this game or did you, did you have this game as a win or do you remember? I'm just curious if we already had it as a loss because we thought they were going to be good. And so it's like oh, not no, the no, end no, of no. the world. Everybody had this on the, as a loss. Yeah. OK. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was Tom Brady and the Bucks who were supposed to be really good. That's right. And it was the Seattle Seahawks and, and Gino or Drew Locke, which were supposed to be very bad and only win five yeah. games the whole year. Certainly nobody thought one of the five games that they were going to win was against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That doesn't change the fact that now as we, we went along and they got to six and three and we saw the Bucks kind of struggle for weeks and weeks at a time that we yeah. didn't revamp our expectations. But, <laughs> totally. But still, <laughs> it just feels like one of those games. I hate to go to the bye week on this, and they're going to the bye week after the trip to Germany. I hate to go to the bye week on a loss and a really bad taste in your mouth. Maybe some people yeah. would say that's exactly the way to go to the bye week. I don't know. But it just felt like a game. Gino for the first half of that game, looked like the Gino that we all thought he was going to be. The, right. the defense essentially for the whole game looked like the defense of the first four weeks. You got to remember that going into that game on Sunday, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were not only the 32nd worst running team in the sport, which makes them dead last, but they were historically bad. They were averaging three yards a carry, 2.9 something yards a carry for 32nd best in the NFL. The one thing that we thought we knew going into Sunday's game was they were not going to be able to run the ball on the Seahawks. And yet... Yeah. How'd it go in that last drive? How'd it go the whole game? 
<laughs> right, but when we really, really needed it on that last drive, they got more than three yards on a couple carries. You know what it felt like? It felt like the Huskies trying to stop the run against Oregon on Saturday night. <laughs> right? Can I, anyone I, stop the run in this Fakakta State? How about Oregon just lining up that one drive? And I think they went like 16 plays. I think they ran it every single down. They just were like, you know what? You guys can't stop us. We might yeah. have Bo Nix. We're just going to hand it off, hand it off, hand it off every single down. And they went all the way down the field. This, the University of Washington had no no answers to the ground game, uh, the ground defense, or the ground game of Oregon. Is this where we transition to the Husky game? Or are we no. still talking Seahawks? Because no, that was saying, a pretty fun game. I'm just saying that uh, you know over the yeah. weekend, we saw two of the worst run defense performances that we've ever seen. That's what I, I guess that's what I'm saying. And yet yeah. the Seahawks still had a chance to win that game. I think the, the Geno fumble in the second half was a killer. They had gone down the field and scored three. They had gotten the ball back. They had a lot of momentum. They were about to score again. And then in a weird play, you remember the play I'm talking about? It looked like a quarterback draw. He kind of took the snap and he took one step back and then he started to run up the middle and there was nowhere to go. Oh, yeah. And then right. he fumbled the ball and Tampa came up with the ball. It was weird. And I thought that Kurt Warner did a nice job on, on the NFL Network, even though it was the world's worst broadcast. <laughs> I think that Kurt Warner did a nice job showing that Geno seemed to be the only one thinking quarterback draw on that play because he took the snap, took one step back, and then started to run up the middle. The offensive line was pass blocking on right. that play. Yeah. So I think the offensive line thought pass, Geno thought run, and a disaster hit, and they lost the ball. And as it turns out, that that could have been the biggest play of the game that cost the Seahawks the chance to come back all the way back and win the football game. But didn't they cut it to five with about how much time was left? Maybe four couple minutes, of minutes or yeah, so? A couple of three minutes, and they needed yeah, a stop. Yeah. They needed one stop, and they couldn't get it. By the way, can we just talk about Marquise Goodwin really quick? What a I catch. Mean, this guy just, what a catch. I, but he's had a couple of good games, right? I mean, he just sort of came out of nowhere, at least for me. I didn't really expect much for him this year. But, well, yeah, what a catch. Well, he had a, he had a good stretch going, and then... He got hurt, and he missed a few games. He's been a nice complimentary third wide receiver to the other two guys, and yep. that was a hell of a – that was one of the best catches we've seen a Seahawk make all season and brought the Seahawks to within striking distance. Yeah, But again, they just couldn't get a stop on the nope. final drive. Just couldn't get the stop. Yeah, Barquise Goodwin is sort of what I, I thought D. Eskridge could have been at some point, and maybe he will be someday, but I <laughs> – I don't want to laugh, but I read D. Eskridge suffered a hand injury in the second quarter he on did. a kick return and did, did not return. It's like, wow. I mean, football, I don't think is for everybody. I, I mean, God, God love the guy, but is it every game that D. Eskridge gets hurt? Or, I mean, poor guy yeah. cannot stay healthy. Not so good. sad to not see. No. I think that Pete Carroll said after the game that it's not a broken hand so that he avoided serious injury. But you're right. He's always hurt. He's oh been uh, you, you hate to use the B word, but come on. He has done very little. He's been a bust. Yep. He's been a bust for the Seattle Seahawks since they drafted him. The good thing is, is that, as you point out, they've got Marquise Goodwin, who's really kind of stepped into that third wide receiver role and taken it uh, by the reins. Going back to the Huskies on Saturday night, where'd you watch that game? By myself in the living room. It was delightful. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> yeah. What a football game. I mean, oh, what a football game. First of all, it had to have been four hours long, wasn't it? Right. It felt really long. Yeah. It felt like the longest college. I think college football games are much longer than NFL games to begin with because of the series of uh, of clock stoppages. But what a great football game. What an exciting college football game. 
a game that I thought that Michael Penix's one mistake in an otherwise scintillating performance was going to be the difference. Nobody could stop anybody. And I was like, okay, who's going to blink first? Which offense is going to make a mistake first and not score? And when Michael Penix rolled to his right on a first down play where there was really nothing going on and all he had to do was heave the ball out of bounds or out of the end zone because he was way out of the pocket. He tried to fit that ball into the tight end in the corner. Yep. And it got deflected and it got intercepted. And it looked like for the longest time that that one play was going to be the difference maker in a game where he threw for 400. I mean, he was beautiful. Yes, he was. The offense was beautiful. He was beautiful. The pass game, what Kalen DeBoer has has orchestrated offensively is fantastic. And it just looked like for the longest time that that one mistake was going to cost the Washington Huskies the win. But nope, the Oregon Ducks had to come out that one series without Bo Nix. And they went, what, four and out? They went for it on fourth down. Washington stopped them. And here we are at eight and two. Eight and two. In Kalen DeBoer's first season. How's that? Anybody impressed with him so far? I mean, you and I talked about it last week. I After the Jimmy Lake stuff, I just I was ready to give him four or five years to maybe be a respectable program again. Right. I did not see eight and two with a win in Oregon. Amazing. Unreal. Now Unreal he's, what he's done. Now he's got a horseshit defense. I mean, yep. let's not let's not pretend. Let's not pretend that the defense is better than it is. It's really bad. And it's got to be one of the worst tackling defenses in the nation. They miss more tackles every single game. Now, I know that this number zero for Oregon was really shifty, and he's great at making the first guy miss, but boy, Washington's tackling is terrible, and their defense, for the most part, is terrible. But he's a great offensive coach. His schemes are amazing. Wide receivers are running free all the time. I know that Penix has been really good, but he's got wide-open receivers more than half the time, and it's just a very exciting brand of football. It is. Well, that, that touchdown throw he had, I think that was the one that tied it in the fourth quarter down the left sideline. I mean, that that throw was unbelievable. And I think it was Brock. Brock Heward pointed out that that safety that was trying to get down to cover him is like a 60 year guy who has experience. And he did not think the ball was going to get there as quickly as it did with that kind of velo. And that was just it was just so fun to watch. And then he stayed in bounds and housed it. Right. I mean, oh, God, what a fun game. How far of a throw. He was on the right hash mark when he made that throw all the way across the field. Probably not the smartest throw to make because somebody somebody who gets a decent (laughs) jump on that picks it off and goes to the house the other way. But yeah, it's really exciting to watch them play. They have got to address the defense. I'm assuming they're going to get better defensive players when they go through the recruiting process. But think about it. After the product that we saw the last couple of years for Jimmy Lake, to be 8-2 and two the first year, as you point out. Now, you've got Colorado, I think, this week. That's a win. That's 9-2. and two. And then you've got the Apple Cup with Wazoo on the road. So that means Washington is going to either end up 9-3 and three in DeBoer's first year or 10-2. and two. I mean, You would have signed up for 9-3 and three in a heartbeat before the season. You would have signed up for 7-5. and five. <laughs> right. You might have yeah. signed up for six and six. Six and six is bowl eligible. <laughs> you you yeah. definitely would have signed up for seven and five. And he's going to give them at least nine and three or ten and two with no defense to speak of. I wonder, A, whether Michael Penix is going to come back. I think he's got one more year of eligibility, I believe I think it or you're not. Right, yeah. Even though he's 35, I, I think <laughs> right. I think if he wants to come back, he can come back for one more year. I don't know that anybody's been talking about whether he's going to come back for like a sixth year of college football or not, or whether he's going to hand the 
hand the ball, hand the ball off to somebody else. Then the other thought I had, and I tweeted this out on Saturday night. You realize, Hotshot, that 12 weeks ago, Seattle football fans were all wondering who's going to be the quarterback at Washington. Should it be, should it be Heward? Should mm. it be Morris? Should it be this new guy Penix? And all the Seattle football fans were wondering who should be the quarterback, Drew Locke or Geno Smith? I mean, there was there was a quarterback controversy on both teams just 12 yeah. weeks ago. And now 12 weeks later, you literally have one of the top three or four quarterbacks in all of college football quarterback in Washington. And you've got and you've got this journeyman veteran quarterbacking the Seahawks and people are asking whether he should be getting MVP votes in the league 12 weeks ago. It's unbelievable. I was I, I was beating the Baker Mayfield drum. You remember that? I wanted Baker Mayfield more than anything. I, I owe an apology to Geno Smith. I think my words were, come on, we know which we know what Geno Smith is. Drew right. Locke is a much more interesting, intriguing possibility. Let's yep. see what Drew Locke is because we know that Gino isn't very good. So why are we putting him out there? What's 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 Gino's line that he that he said that everyone loves playing back that he, people wrote him off, but he didn't write back yes, or something like that. Yes, and I, I think I, he copyrighted I love that. that. I think he trademarked that. Yeah. Oh, did he? Because yeah. it's pretty damn true. Yeah. I mean, we all wrote him off before he threw a pass this season. What city has a college slash pro quarterback combination? Better right now, going better right now than Michael Penix and Geno Smith. And, and we didn't want probably, there were a lot of people who didn't want either of those guys to see the light of day before <laughs> right, the right. It's crazy. Good for the Huskies. Was, Great win over Oregon. They ruined Oregon's national, cha- any national championship hopes that they had. The Huskies yep. went into Austin Stadium and, and rained on the Oregon Duck Parade. I'm sure that Slicky isn't very happy right now, but uh, good for the Huskies. Please tell me you saw the player for Oregon fake the injury. Please tell me you you caught that towards the end of the game. I can't remember his yeah. name, but yeah. his player, his teammates were all around. I'm like, we got to hurry up. Let's go. And it kind of dawned on him. There's not much time left. And he just hits the ground and starts holding his leg. And you can see him like wink at his teammates. It's like, I'm glad. Then, of course, winners don't winners never cheat and cheaters never win. So that's what you get. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that's a rule that needs to be adjusted. If if a guy gets hurt on a on a clock stoppages like a like an incomplete pass, then there's no 10-second runoff. They consider making a first down inbounds a clock stoppage because it stops momentarily to allow them to redo the chains mm-hmm. in college. That doesn't happen in the NFL. So they actually think of that the same way as they think of an incomplete pass as it pertains to an injured player. But you're right. It was totally a fake. I thought it was totally a fake. And they got a very, very beneficial call out of it, a beneficial break to stop the clock and allow them to get the one more play. But uh, I think they should review that rule. I think they should change that rule. If it's a first down that's inbounds, then I don't think that they should view that the same way as they view a clock stoppage going out of bounds or an incomplete pass. And by the way, I'm not the only one. I mean, there, there, I was on the duck message board because I'm a child and I like to revel in the tears of, yeah. you know, my, yeah. my foes. Yeah. Then one person wrote, this was inevitable. Worst part and most embarrassing are the fake injuries to stop the clock. Talk about chicken shit. Wow. <laughs> embarrassing to be a duck. <laughs> so it's duck fans who hate it too. It's not just Husky fans, you know, uh, it is. Yeah. They, they definitely need to address that. Cause that, that just, but then, but then when, when the guy slipped on the, I think it was a fourth, it was, fourth down right when the running back slipped 
and they didn't get the first down. It's like, ah, there you go. That's the kind of stuff that happens when when cheaters try to cheat. Uh, Uh, But it was a fun game, right? I mean, not not for Duck fans, but what a a blast. Anybody who watched that game that didn't have a rooting interest in one team or the other that wasn't entertained by that does not like football. That was... Now, there wasn't a lot of defense being played. I mean, if you if you like a smash mouth defensive football game, you probably don't like that one. But that was high drama on Saturday night and low drama on Sunday morning in Munich, Germany. So (laughs) we got a little we got a little of both. After Jeff Perlman talks about the Bo Jackson book, we'll obviously have the Seahawks no table. We'll get into the game in Germany. And then, of course, Rick Neuheisel also will talk to us about the Huskies win the bad interception, the overcoming of the bad interception to get to eight and two on the season. Three guests and then other stuff segment on episode 214. Hey, look who's back. Look who's back. Jordan Flowers, Cross Country Mortgage. Hear what I did there? Cross Country Mortgage in Kirkland, weathering the interest rate storm to continually provide his clients cost-cutting opportunities how are you, Jay Flo? Doing great. We're back in the swing of things with school starting, kids' activities. It's a fun time. What's new over there? What are you working on these days? You know, we are staying incredibly busy really right now. It's just educational information for agents and buyers. We're helping agents with their listings, trying to help them see win-win scenarios for their sellers and buyers, trying to keep sales prices up for those sellers to get all the equity they can in the home, but also help buyers see the monthly payment that they kind of had slated in their head. So putting together different payment options and programs for them there. And then holding a lot of home buyer seminars, home buyer classes. So if anybody listening is interested in just coming to a informational home buying seminar and what's available to you and what to be looking for when buying a home, then email me and we'll get you on the next slated home buying class. Okay. I'll ask you for your email at the end because borrowing money has become hopefully temporarily expensive. We've seen a little slowdown in home values, but not as much as you would think. Why do you think that is, Jordan? Yeah, we've not seen much of a dip here. And you might read in the newspapers that a huge crash is coming. We don't really see that happening and playing out in this market. I think we have a very strong economy in general in this Seattle market. We've always been protected, even in the worst times. The last time we went through this in 08, 09, but really prices have leveled out. We're not depreciating. We're just not appreciating as quickly. So I would say still, it's a great time to list. You might not be getting a million dollars over lists like we were at the beginning of the year, but we're still gaining value. Yeah. And overall in King County, it's maybe two, 3% right now, but pure Snohomish, we're still looking great. You and your team, of course, kind of famously made the career shift from the former company, let's call it, to cross country. What does that change mean to your clients, Jordan? Yeah, the the switch was really an opportunity for us to have more programs and products available to a larger audience base that we work with, self-employed borrowers, unique income scenario borrowers, investment property buyers, and just a more direct line to underwriting for us to make more make sense decisions on the clients that we have, as well as a much larger product offering for jumbo buyers. So opened up the product mix for us. If you want to take a class or you want to learn a little bit more about home buying, what's the uh, you always give us your phone number. What's the email for Jordan Flowers? Yeah, my email is Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N period flowers, F-L-O-W-E-R-S at myccmortgage.com. Jordan.flowers 
at myccmortgage.com. We love Jordan Flowers. We love Cross Country Mortgage, a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. Third down and six at the nine. And Bo Jackson to the 20 and out in front. And only one man to beat and Easley can't run him down. He had the angle, but there goes Bo. And nobody catches Bo. Touchdown. (laughs) He may not stop the Tacoma. Line drive toward the corner and left field. It's going to be up to Bo Jackson to try to stop Reynolds from scoring. He can't do it. Yes, he can. I don't believe it. He made an absolutely perfect throw. It looked like there was no way he was going to get it. Episode 214, Mitch Unfiltered, and our next guest has been a terrific sports writer for a lot of years. I don't want to date him. Ten books, I understand, to his credit. New York Times bestselling author. Three Ring Circus about Kobe, Shaq, and Phil. The Bad Guys won on the 86 Mets. Also, Barry Bonds, the Dallas Cowboys, Brett Favre. I'd actually like to ask him about Brett Favre at some point during the interview. His latest work is now out everywhere where books are sold. The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Here's Jeff Perlman. Hi, Jeff. You can ask me about Brett Favre now if you want. I'm happy to talk about Brett Favre. <laughs> I'm sure you, you are. What do you think? You want. Yeah. What do you think of Brett Favre? I think he's disgusting. I think the idea that you would, um, you're a wealthy guy from the poor state in America, Mississippi. The fact that you would allegedly take money that was earmarked for welfare recipients uh, and use it to build a volleyball arena at your alma mater, Southern Miss, because your daughter is on the volleyball team, is so preposterously disgusting. You're Brett Favre. You spent 20 years in the NFL. You played alongside people from all walks of life. You played alongside people who did grow up on welfare, who were poor and black in the South, who know the struggle. I probably told you about the struggle and you lack the empathy like you. It doesn't even make sense to me. It's so horrific. It pisses me off. Does it surprise you? I mean, you did a book on him. Um, Yeah, it surprises me because it's, you know, it's weird. I actually think in a way we uh, we let him off the hook. When he sent the pictures of his privates to the sideline reporter, and a year later he goes to the Vikings, and we're like, this is a great story. It's the yeah. comeback. Of- yeah. We let him off the hook, like in a bad way. Like what he did, he ruined that woman's life. The woman's name was Jen Sturger. She was trying to make her way as a reporter. She became toxic in culture in the sports world because some guy sent him pictures of his dick. Like it's insane that she was the one who put, was punished for that. And we should have been ahead of this mm-hmm. many moons ago. And we let Favre walk because we were charmed by him. Segway to Bo Jackson. I saw a bunch of interviews that you did. Um, you've said over and over again, biggest reason why you did this book is you're worried that as the years slip away, people will start to forget about Bo Jackson. I would say that's true. We forget about everyone. Like the truth of the matter is we do forget about everyone. Generations come, generations go. We forget. But I feel like some people have legacies that last a little longer and some people fade away. And I feel like we're at that point where people are not remembering Bo Jackson, where his, you know, his legacy is sort of the name doesn't ring a bell to younger people. People still know Jackie Robinson. People still know Mickey Mantle's name. People still know, I don't know, Vince Lombardi, whatever you want to say. But I, I don't feel like that many people know Bo Jackson like they used to. And I think he's the greatest athlete. In fact, I know he's the greatest athlete to ever walk the earth. 
And I believe that's a legacy worth discussing. So that's why I wrote the book. Personally, people describe him as a weird guy, Jeff. Not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily in a negative sense. I guess sometimes in a negative sense, but just what is kinda, weird in it? What is weird in the positive sense? Well, How do you describe him as a weird guy? Well, weird. well, we. I, I don't know. I guess. I guess it's always a negative, but it doesn't have to be too negative. I mean, we just talked about a weird guy named Brett Favre, and that's a little bit more negative than maybe this weird guy, but. There was a stuttering problem as a kid. What's the personal truth of, about this guy? He's very prickly. Like the word I use is prickly. He's very, very prickly. He's very, very guarded. He can be very standoffish. I did a, a speaking engagement last night about the book in L.A. And someone told me a story. And I heard variations of this. He said, uh, you know, the famous poster of Bo, it's called the ball player. And it's him with the bat across his yeah, shoulder. Of course, of course. Everyone knows that image, right? Anyone over a certain age knows that image. Well, this guy went to an autograph show somewhat recently. And was told by Bo's people or Bo that Bo does not sign that image because he's not, he didn't make the right money off of it or he didn't make enough money off of it. Right. And I was thinking, I was just, I swear to God, I was just talking to my son about this when I picked him up from basketball practice. How like you're Bo Jackson and you're at an autograph show and some guy has paid money to go to an autograph show and then probably paid money to get an autograph from you. And he loves you. Obviously he loves you. He's a fan of you. And he shows up with this poster and you're like, no, I can't sign it. Like, that's weird. And there's another one. I interviewed a teammate of his, Greg Townsend, former Raider. Oh, and yeah. they did an autograph. Yeah. yeah. Good, very good player. Actually. Defensive they did a, uh, yeah. Correct. They did an autograph show together years ago in Anaheim at the convention center. And he, Greg told me a story. He said, he walks up to Bo. He hadn't seen him in years. And he's like, Bo, what's going on? And Bo's like, hey, man, how's it going? And um, Greg has like a helmet and a jersey. And he says, hey, would you mind signing these? And Bo said, yeah, but I'm going to have to charge you. And Greg's like, wait, what? What? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, and it really violates a code. Like athletes don't make other athletes charge. They don't charge. So he charged him $400 to sign like two things. Wow. And Townsend paid it. And at the end he said, his quote to me that he said to Bo was you were an asshole. Then you're an asshole now. Wow. And I don't think he is an asshole. He he's prickly. Like he also, at the same time, he runs his charity bike race every year. Bo yeah. knows Bama, like Bo bikes Bama that makes yeah. gazillions of dollars. He paid for the uh, funeral expenses for a lot of the Uvalde families after the shooting in Texas. People are complex. That's how I always say people are complex. He's probably mad at you for writing this book. I don't think he's thrilled. Um, <laughs> I, when I spoke to him, when I spoke to him, I'll be blunt. Like when I spoke to him early on in the process, we had a very nice conversation. And his quote was something along the lines of, I don't mind you writing the book, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to help you with it. I get asked all the time for these things, but I don't mind you writing it. And I was like, well, that's as cool a response as I'll get without someone helping. And I do think it's like, it's one thing when someone says, I'm going to write a book about you. And it's another thing when that person calls 720 people yeah, and all of a sudden maybe you're Bo Jackson and you're getting calls from like your, your Auburn kicker and coaches and physicians and whoever saying, Hey, this guy called me. Hey, this guy called me. Right. So I get it. And also like the book is a very honest portrayal of Bo. And I would say it's 97% flattering. I really would, but you know, he was kind of a dog in college. He definitely had an agent who paid him, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So you know, I get it. Was one of the 720 people Kevin Seitzer? It was. I spoke to Kevin Seitzer. What Do you know the Kevin Seitzer story? What, what happened between Kevin Seitzer and Bo Jackson? All right. So Seitzer with the Royals. I'm not saying he's this way now. You know, we all, we all were young and we grew yeah. out of it. Yeah. What was a pain in the ass? He was like the guy. We all, we've all been around guys like this. The guy who always has to walk up and flick your ear, flick your ear, flick your ear, or like make fun of your kid or... Hey, what's that pimple on your head? Oh, blah, blah, you know, like that guy. Yeah. That was Seitzer. Yeah. And Bo and Kevin Seitzer, Ed Hearn and Bill Pakoda were in the a hitting group together with the Royals. 
and they're under the stadium hitting in the cage. And Bo has to leave for a second to do something at his locker. He comes back and Seitzer jumped in front of him. And Bo Jackson's like, okay, hey, it's my turn to hit. And Seitzer's left. You left, you left. So Bo back jumps in and Seitzer's still being a pain in the ass. And he's giving him grief. And Bo says, Kevin, you need to stop. And Kevin keeps at it. Seitzer keeps at it. Bo walks up to him, puts his hand around his neck, pins him against the wall, lifts him off the wall, and has his arms straight out. He's basically choking Kevin Seitzer. And Seitzer's turning blue. Bunch of teammates, coaches come running over. Bo, Bo, st- Bo, stop, stop, stop. They have to rip his arm off of him. Hmm. Bo retreats to the clubhouse. He takes a bat. He slams it against the wall. He is furious. And about an hour later, Seitzer walks up to him. And he's like, are we good, Bo? And Jackson's like, nah, man, <laughs> we're, we're not good. You need to stop. This is not, you need to stop doing this. So Interesting. Complex guy, as you, as you point out, power and speed, speed and power. Nobody had both like this guy. There have been moments that have been documented on film, obviously running up the wall after the catch, the home runs. We like to, in Seattle, talk about or not talk about the touchdowns at the kingdom down the sideline, Brian Bosworth taking Brian Bosworth with him into the end zone. How about, how about the story of the fly ball, the legendary story of the fly ball, in high school or I think I think it was high school that he hit and by the time the ball landed he was rounding third base power and speed Jeff well I just want to say first of all Bo pretty much owned Seattle because he also made the Harold Reynolds throw at the kingdom that he did when he threw it out so yeah a lot of Seattle (laughs) considering that stadium is basically a a sardine can with you know yeah fake grass he loved that place um basically he was a senior in high school McAdory High in Alabama and he's playing baseball and they're playing Fairfield High in a game and uh, Bo hits a fly ball to left field that just goes high, higher and higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And I heard this story from people. I never believed it. Like, it just didn't seem real. But at Fairfield High, I had a left fielder named Eddie Scott, and I tracked down Eddie Scott. <laughs> and he swears it's true. He said the ball, it's the highest hit ball he'd ever seen. And he went on to play in college. Ball hits the ground because he lost it. He bends over to pick it up, looks to throw to second, and Bo is rounding third on a sh- shallow fly ball to left field. Amazing. And... um it's the damnest thing he's ever seen. Just uh, the damnest thing he's ever seen. Gosh. How fast yeah. was he, Jeff? Well, he ran a 4-1-3 at Auburn, which is preposterous. <laughs> then he went to uh, the Raiders, and they had him run a 40 on grass in pads. He runs a 4-1-9. They don't believe it. They have him run it again. He runs a 4-1-7. His first major league at bat was uh, White Sox-Royals, uh, September 2nd in 86. Steve Carlton pitching for the White Sox. Bo hits a ground ball to second base. <laughs> <laughs> beats it out, runs a 3-6, which is the second fastest recorded time from home to first by a right-handed hitter in the history of Major League Baseball. What's the fastest? So, it was Mickey Mantle running a 3-5, but I will. I, I think I'll go to my grave. <laughs> Mickey Mantle, I'm sure Mickey Mantle was clocked with tick, 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 uh, tick. Bo was clocked digital. There's no way Mickey Mantle was faster than Bo Jackson. It's just not possible. Mickey Mantle was clocked 1,001, 1,002. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One Mississippi, two Mississippi. <laughs> No way. Jeff Perlman is our guest. Terrific author. Listen, either I had forgotten or I never knew the airplane story, the White Sox airplane story. Uh, was it a big was it a big deal then? I don't recall no, it. You probably didn't know it. OK, I didn't know it. Tell it. Well, White Sox are uh, he's on the White Sox in 1991. They're coming back from uh, California, play the Angels. And uh, they're flying an American American West charter. And one of the players looks out the window it was uh, Tim Hewlett. It looks out. No, Craig Rebecca looks out the window mm-hmm. and the engine's on fire. And he says, holy S, he went, the engine's on fire. And people start going crazy. And, you know, the plane starts banking and the players are like crucifixing themselves and, you know, sitting in crash positions. And all of a sudden, 
the cockpit door opens and it's Bo Jackson. And he walks out of the cockpit. He says, guys, everything's going to be okay. The pilots have it under control. Don't worry about it. And Joey Cora, the infielder, said it's the most courageous thing he's ever seen. But another teammate told me, no, 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 you got that story wrong. Bo is in his seat. The plane catches on fire. Everyone's freaking out. Bo gets up and dashes up to the cockpit to help them land the plane. I don't know which is true. I suggest in the book, because it's Bo Jackson, maybe both are true. But the plane lands in Des Moines, Iowa, emergency landing, 3.30 in the morning, empty airport. They get off the plane, and there's a, a kiosk that's closed. And there's next to the kiosk is a keg with a lock on it. And Bo Jackson, I get this from everyone. Bo Jackson walks up to the keg, takes his right hand, breaks the lock off the keg, <laughs> and pours, pours beer for everyone. And I always say, this is the mythology of Bo Jackson. Where did the cups come from? Where did he get those cups? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he made them. He could do anything. He could make cups out of uh, airport seats. <laughs> Jeff, the hip injury obviously is the biggest reason why you said at the beginning that we, we might begin to forget him as the years go on because the hip injury didn't allow him to extend his baseball or football careers that game against the Bengals. What do you know about the injury? How much of the um, of the book did you spend on medically the history? And I'm just wondering, you know, early 90s, late 80s, here we are in mm -hmm. 2022. So we're 32 years later with medical advancements. Would things have been different had he suffered that injury today? Would somebody have been able to fix him? Oh, drastically different. So he wouldn't have been able to play football at all. It was called a vascular necrosis. And it really is a, it's basically your body part begins to die is the layman's ex explanation of it. It's a devastating, if this was running forward, it's a Raiders playoff game, Bengals 91, Bengals linebacker named Kevin Walker grabs him from behind. Bo's hip comes out of the socket yeah. and just explodes. It's awful. And that was the end. And they didn't know what they were doing back then. Like literally He's on the sideline for the rest of the game chatting with his kids. Then he's in the locker room. Then he's going out to dinner with his wife. And like he finally goes around to go into the doctor the next day with his and the doctor takes a scan and he says, you see all this black bow? And he's like, yeah, he goes, that is your blood. Oh. That is blood pooling in your hip. It was really gross. So Andy Murray. Oh, and the hip, they, he ended up getting a hip replacement. That injury happened in 91 and 92. He gets a hip replacement. It's basically the same hip replacement like your grandma got. It was a plastic hip with metal bolts. If you ran too hard or moved too fast, the metal would rub against the plastic and shards of plastic would come off into your body. It was very archaic. Well, nowadays, like Andy Murray, the tennis player, the British tennis player, had a very similar injury. And he was able to make almost a full comeback because they do the hip in a completely and totally different way now. And I talked to the guy who did Andy Murray's surgery. And he said, um, if Bo came back now, he could not play football, but he would probably lose if he was running, let's just say at that point in his career, he's running a 4 2 40 he could have still run a 4-3-40. Like, he would have lost a tiny bit of speed, wow. but not that much speed. The risk in football would have been just a direct hit on the hip wow. would not be good. When he was playing with the Angels, the artificial hip, he literally could not, if he ran for balls, he could not stop on a dime. So he would have to round out his turns. And they kept a, um, a stretcher in the dugout just in case his hip blew up. Wow. They were terrified of his hip blowing up and the internal bleeding killing him. Why haven't we seen more of him? I know there was the speech issue uh, when he was young, you would think that we'd see him on Fox. We'd see him every now and again here or there. Somebody would throw some money at him. I would assume he would take somebody's check if somebody were to throw some dollars. Why, why do you why do you think he's kind of gone underground a little bit on us? Well, you know, he still plays like he'll play charity golf events and he'll do ads for certain things. He did an ad with Bosworth a couple years ago. And, but um, he doesn't really need it or want it. Like he just hasn't shown any interest in being in the spotlight. He'll never be the guy 
slamming Derrick Henry, saying, oh, I'm better than this guy, or looking at Mike Trout and saying, I could have been this guy. He's just not that guy. Yeah. He's always been family first. He truly has always been family first. He, you know, he was raised in a really tough environment with a really tough family situation with a father who not only abandoned him, but lived across town and abandoned him. And he just committed himself to not being that guy. So I don't think he plays a lot of golf, like a lot of retired athletes, but he's not sitting there watching. Whoever the Raiders are playing this week, Bo Jackson probably won't be watching that game. Mm. I love that about him, by the way. It's much more interesting than if you were doing color commentary for the for the Royals. Does he care what his legacy is? No, zero inches. Doesn't give a crap. Just doesn't care. Like he's just not, you know, there's a 30 for 30 about him. They had to really convince him to be involved. Like he didn't want to do it. I talked to the guy who produced it for ESPN and there was this glow. It's the most viewed 30 for 30 in the history of the, uh, of the really 30 for 30. Didn't know. Yeah. Bo, Bo knows Bo. He wasn't involved until the end. They really had to coerce him to do it. And you're like, this is a documentary about you for ESPN. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'll do it. But he just didn't care. doesn't care in a good way. I think. You, you think it's it, it adds to the whole Bo Jackson story that we don't have everything on video that we don't have oh. that, we, that we didn't have Twitter and TikTok available back in the in the late 80s and early 90s when he was doing these things, because it's led our imaginations to go wild a little bit. Look, if we had I'm pretty sure Babe Ruth did not point a shot in the World Series against the Cubs. Right. The odds that he pointed and then hit a home run to that exact spot are pretty long. I doubt that Earl Marigold was able to jump and grab a quarter off the top of a backboard, the goat. I doubt it, but I love the stories about it. Like, I love that stuff. I love the debate. And I just think Bo ran a 4 one There's no video of him running a 4 one Maybe the video would show he ran a 4 one and it wouldn't be nearly as fun. The thing that's cool is we have enough. Like, yes. we have the video of him running up the wall, running horizontal across the wall, running down the wall. And that video in and of itself screams, this guy can do anything he effing wants, right? This guy is a freak. This guy is an athlete unlike any athlete. And it whets the appetite enough that when I tell you the story about a ball being so high that Bo is rounding third, you think, okay, I can believe that because I saw him run up a wall. I saw him throw at Howard Reynolds. I saw him run over Brian Bosworth. And I saw him win the Heisman Trophy. No question about it. Terrific stuff. Listen, I I wish you all the well. This is is this book number 10? Is that right? Or 11? What number? Number 10. Number 10. Number 10. Lucky number 10. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson by Jeff Perlman, who does it really, really well. Jeff, thank you for taking some time out for Mitch Unfiltered this week. Thank you. My pleasure, Mitch. Thank you. Hey, look who I found. It's Katie Versio, Director of Financial Planning for Evergreen Golf Call, an incredible partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Katie, how's everyone doing over there at, at Evergreen? We're doing very well, Mitch. How are you? Uh, very well. I'll have you know. Everyone knows by now. Mitch went three for three last time. I'm expecting that the streak is going to continue. Do we have a theme today? Yes. So theme today, we're doing an economic update. So I pulled some questions from our most recent podcast, The Evergreen Exchange. It's a biweekly podcast that we put out. It discusses investing, the economy, and other financial planning topics. So for those who are interested in learning more, you can find The Evergreen Exchange anywhere you listen to podcasts. Which is also produced by our producer, Steve. So I'm ready for questions. Question number one, Katie, go. Okay, so the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates in 2022 to slow down the economy and fight inflation. Has this year had the quickest increase in rates in 40 years? Is that true or false? Yeah, I think it's true. I think I read something about 40 years. I'll say true, Katie. That's right. 
had the fastest tightening cycle this year. The second fastest was in 1995-1996. We find that the Fed really tends to overcorrect when they're during these tightening cycles, and that has pushed us into recessions historically. We're expecting them to increase rates two more times here in 2022, and so that's part of the reason why the markets are down so substantially, with stocks and bonds both down about 20%. And now I'm on a four-question streak. Let's make it five. Question number two, Katie. All right. Since 1950, there's been 14 Fed hiking cycles where they increase interest rates. How many of these 14 cycles have ended in a recession? Is it six, nine, 11, or 14? Would be a total guess. I can't believe it's 14, and I'm sure six is way too low. I'll go 11. I'll go C, Katie. That's right. You got that one right. Yes! Typically, what the Fed is trying to do when they increase interest rates is to have a soft landing to ease the economy, to slow it down, but not slow it down too much. And historically, they have not been very successful in doing so. Oh, my God. I'm five for my last five. Shall we quit now or do we go to a question three, Katie? (laughs) We'll see. This one's a tough one. Interest rates have increased dramatically this year, which has really shifted the income markets. So in October of 2021, a year ago, a two-year Treasury bond was yielding 0.5%. So today, what is that yield? Is it 2.5%, 3.5%, 4%, or 4.5%? Ooh, 3.5%? Stab in the dark? So you didn't quite get that one right. It's actually D, four and a half percent. I tried to trick you with that one by putting it on the end there. It's been a huge amount of income pickup over the last year from 0.5% to four and a half percent for these bonds. So we're finding a lot more opportunities in the income markets versus what we saw a year ago. So while we think there will be continued volatility in the stock market, we're finding a lot of more opportunities to increase income. For those that are interested in learning more about this, how we're positioning portfolio, I'd recommend listening to our most recent podcast and checking out our website at evergreengk.com. And of course, the Evergreen Exchange every other week from Evergreen Golf Call, a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and Everything Wealth. Unfiltered. Brady flings it wide open. Julio Jones. Julio Jones trying to score. Touchdown. Brady looks his way, looks the other way, and it's a touchdown, Chris Godwin. They played a really good football game. Tampa Bay did did what they wanted to do, and and, uh, particularly early in the game, they were able to keep us off balance, and uh, we have not been like that for a a while, and and, uh, so we had to regroup. um, Particularly, you know, I don't think we converted a third down in the first half and didn't run the ball at all. Episode 214, it's Seahawks No Table Time. It's brought to you by Taco Time Northwest, tacotimenw.com. If you'd like to join their team, by the way, we've got some who was doing some work, and the Seahawks on a rare Sunday lost the game. So we might be going outside the box for who was doing some work later on in this segment with Joe Fan win bet in Las Vegas. I can see in his eyes he's thinking about, oh, where am I I going? And Brady (laughs) Henderson, ESPN Seahawks insider, who was sent to the corner, and he had to cover the game from his home just outside of Seattle. Brady, I start with you. The Seahawks were losers on Sunday in Germany. We can point to a lot of reasons why. 
I know why I think they lost. Why do you think they lost to the Bucs? I'll give you one reason, which is that they underestimated Tampa Bay's running game in a big way. And their whole defensive game plan uh, was built around trying to stop Brady in the passing game and not dropping, you know, and dropping seven defenders into coverage and only blitzing him sparingly. They only blitzed him three times. Uh, and their idea was they're going to play coverage. They're not going to worry as much about the run game. And, for you know, for good reason, I think the approach was understandable. You know, Tampa Bay was the worst running team in the NFL going into this game, but they got the better of Seattle there at 160 plus yards on the ground. Uh, the, the per rush average didn't look very good, but but they really got Seattle on a number of runs. And so the whole idea was to stop Brady and figure that you're going to be good enough to stop the run game as well. And they couldn't stop either one of those. And when you combine that, Joe, with the fact that they couldn't run the ball at all, 14 carries, 39 total yards. So really the running game, one team couldn't do it. And then the same team that couldn't do it, couldn't stop it. That's uh, that's what Brady Henderson of ESPN. You got any other pearls of wisdom of why the Seahawks couldn't complete the comeback and, and win that game on Sunday in Germany? Yeah, I mean, they certainly got whipped at the in the trenches on both sides of the football, and the defense was bad. I mean, even if your strategy is to stop Tom Brady, they didn't do a very good job of that either. They were just getting beat one-on-one time and time again, certainly on third down. I mean, one of the stories of the game, if not the story of the game, the Bucks go 10 of 15, the Seahawks go one of nine sort of tells you the story of the game right there. Both teams missed opportunities. Both teams gift wrapped turnovers uh, to the other team. But for me, it's it's the Seahawks that, that couldn't stay on the field offensively in the first half. Then, you know, you look at they came out and moved the football really well to start the third quarter, and they only get a field goal uh, on that opening possession. And then um, following the the terrible play call that that kept Seattle in the game, the, the pass from Fournette that's intercepted, intended for Tom Brady, Great drive, and then the Geno Smith fumble that was just as egregious. So, yeah, it's just a a no good, very bad day for for mostly everybody, but certainly the defense in all levels. Brady, when Joe says ten of fifteen on third down for Tampa, one of nine for Seattle, that's really just another way of talking about the running game because the Bucks' running game was so good that it was third and one all the time. Yeah, and the Seahawks' running game was so bad that it was third and eight all the time. And when one team's third and eight all the time and the other team's third and one, I got news for you. One's going to go 10 of 15 on third down. The other one's going to go one of nine. That's just the way it works. Yeah, but they also weren't good either on the short yardage situations that they had. And there's one that I can think of. It was Ken Walker on a third and one. Look, Ken Walker, I think, has burst onto the scene like he has because of a running style that is often very patient. And he's busted out a lot of big runs because of that. But you know, on third and one, he needed to be more decisive there and uh, hit that hole harder than he did. Now, that's easy for me to say. I was watching the game on my couch drinking coffee. I'm in Seattle, by the way. I'm not outside city limits, sorry, just for the record. Sorry, uh, so easy for me to say as a sports writer, but when you're a running back, uh, you've got to be a little bit more aggressive there. And and he was not. Well, um, yeah. And and, I'm, and we're going to talk about the, the, field. the field. Let's talk conditions about the field. and how that might have yeah. impacted it. Joe, we're not going to be the NFL Network and literally go the whole day without mentioning or having a conversation, I shouldn't say mentioning, having a conversation on the playing conditions in the playing field. I, I, I said it with Hotshot Scott in the first segment of episode 214. There is no doubt in my mind, I will go to my grave convinced that NFL officials told NFL network announcers, let's not talk about the field, guys. 
Let's not talk about the field. This is a this is a celebratory game in Germany. We're putting our best product out there. Let's not harp on the field. That field, that field was an embarrassment. And I got news for you, Joe. It's not just the Germany field. It's the London field. It's every time they play an international game. Typically, these game conditions are bad. The games themselves are bad. The performances are bad. It's a bad product, and they're just cashing in for the almighty dollar. I'll just throw it to you on that. I don't really get it. I don't know how it could possibly be so bad. A, the standards should be infinite for a you know the billion dollar 50 billion dollar money machine that is the NFL but these are major venues that host major sports teams and i what's what is the big difference between getting a, a field ready for soccer up to the standards of the Bundesliga or the English Premier League that is so egregiously different than what is necessary and required for the NFL I don't get that. So I agree with you. It's embarrassing. It was absolutely an issue. I don't think the Seahawks can use it as an excuse because two teams played on that field today. Yeah. Uh, But it's certainly part of the story. Well, first of all, they played on the field on Sunday, Joe, not today. That's the first thing. Yeah, they played on that field on on Sunday uh, in Germany. But but let me be a bitter Seahawks fan and and address what you just said. That was the level-headed way of looking at this. Both teams played on the field. But this is what I said to Brady before you jumped on. You know, you were kind of late getting onto the Zoom. While we were waiting for you, I said to Brady, tell me if you agree with this. The style of Kenneth Walker, the cutting back and the juking and the hop steps, his style, that field negated his style more than anything. The, 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 the Buccaneers have these plodding running backs that aren't using the cutbacks as much, not using the fancy footwork as much. I really think, and maybe you say I'm a bitter Seahawks fan, I really think that that field hurt Kenneth Walker more than it hurt anybody else on the football field. Well, it hurt Tom Brady a whole lot because he would have gone up and high-pointed that ball <laughs> uh, against Tariq Woolen, and he, he would have see him. he slipped, and uh, it was like he chunked a wedge and just completely okay. pulled up uh, okay. a big pelt. Here turf. I am and making so, a great point, and Joe just fires me down with a Tom Brady reception. Well, I no, I, and I think it's a good point, and I also look. Both teams had to play on it, and it was awful. I mean, in the first quarter, I remember thinking, "This looks like." a fairway at Jackson park or Jefferson park. No disrespect to those courses. I love them, but it looked like an unkempt <laughs> you fairway. You are the mayor of those courses. I am the mayor with, uh, with unfilled divots. I mean, the field was chewed up like Terrible. 10 minutes into the, yeah, 10 minutes into the game. And, you know, both teams did have to play on it and you saw the bucks slip a lot there, but I, I wonder, I, I agree with Mitch's point. And I, but I also wonder if maybe this was more of a disadvantage to the Seahawks for another reason. And the simple fact is, they are the faster team, and I think that speed advantage as a team was probably negated uh, by that turf. And so I, I wonder if they were maybe more impacted by that uh, than the Bucks were. But to go back to 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 propose a theory on to a question that Joe asked is you know why is it like this when it's you know the standard should be uh, so much higher for you know all those you know German soccer leagues and everything. I wonder if if there's a difference in a turf that's built for soccer versus a turf that's built for heavier, more explosive athletes. I mean, these are not 180 pound, uh, you know, guys running in a straight line for most of a game on a, in a soccer game. These are, you know, bigger, 
more explosive explosive athletes. And I, I wonder if that has something to do with it. But um, you know, I think it's also kind of goes to the the it's it's worth mentioning when there's the greater discussion about should NFL teams uh switch from turf to all grass. And I realize that this is not an NFL stadium. This is in Europe, but um, you do see this type of issue in NFL stadiums that have grass. And I just think it's look it, in a, in a multi-billion dollar league, like the NFL should figure out a way to get safe field conditions, whether it's grass or turf. And if you're going with grass, they should figure out a way with all the money they have to, to make them playable and to not have huge chunks of turf coming up. But I do think it is a little easier said than done. Uh, to just say, okay, well, you solve the problem by switching from turf to grass because when you have grass, you're going to have, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you're going to have situations like this. I don't know if you guys are moral victory guys, but I'll throw this one at you. At halftime of that game, it looked like the Seahawks were going to get blown out in Germany, have to take that long trip home, and then go into their bye week after four great performances back to back to back to back. Joe, as it turns out, the Seahawks come out firing in that third quarter and fourth quarter. You mentioned the fumble. They were in position to score when they fumbled. Uh, They got the pass game going. Your guy, Marquise Goodwin, made a great catch, I believe, on a fourth down play in the end zone. They they were this close. They were a stop away. If they could have just stopped the, the, the Bucks on that last drive from having a chance to pull this game out of their asses in Germany. Do we take anything from that? Is it a is it a better better taste in your mouth over the next two weeks until they get back on the field, or a loss is a loss, and it wouldn't have matter whether they got blown out or they lost the way they did? It's not irrelevant, but I'd also tell you the Bucks were about to walk in for a touchdown and make it a boat race, and they decided to throw a pass with Leonard Fournette to Tom Brady. I think it's. It's it was nice to see the passing game had plenty of life, especially in when they went tempo. Um, they marched down the field a couple of a couple of times in a row. I mean, really, what four drives? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were able to march down the field in the second half. So yeah, I, I, that's not nothing. I don't think anyone should be looking for the panic button at this point. I mean, they just they played a bad game and they still gave themselves a chance. And so yeah, I guess you can you can take some good feeling from that. Um, but. I don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Brady, it felt like they went to the tight ends in the second half. Yeah, that was the case, especially on that opening drive, which, you know, for them, it only resulted in three points, which, you know, down 14-0, they needed touchdowns, not field goals. But yeah, they did get the tight ends involved uh, and they really just threw the ball more in general. I think Geno Smith had 10 attempts uh, at halftime and then they really put the ball in his hands, not only because the running game was so ineffective, but you know, also just because the score sort of dictated it. So you saw more tight ends. You also saw more of Ken Walker uh, as a pass catcher. I think this was the most he had been involved in the passing game. Look, I think there are some silver linings to this. I think Cody Barton, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to get through this without uh, not mentioning, you know, my near ace prediction. When I said Jordan Brooks would get his first career interception, I'm here to tell you that I went back and forth debating whether or not to go with Jordan Brooks or <laughs> Barton because it was I figured almost that both. You almost got both of them. It was that. almost both, but uh, I just figured the game plan, not blitzing Tom Brady loves to throw over the middle. One yeah. of those guys was going to get it. Yeah. Uh, but the the point I was going to make before I patted myself on the back there was that Cody Barton has been playing better. That was a fantastic interception. Thank you. So that's a silver lining. And the other one, obvious one is that they're still 
uh, six and four as they go into their bye. They're still, uh, you know, first place in the NFC West, regardless of what happens with the 49ers and in the Sunday night game. So they're still in good shape, but I just think it's at least a little troubling because some of their struggles in this game looked a little like the struggles they had on both sides of the ball during that one and two start. Which brings us to the point of the show where typically after a win, we uh, we hand out game balls, but the way we do it, because Taco Time Northwest is such a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered, we ask the question, who was doing some work? We hand out burritos and tacos, but the Seahawks lost, so that, that opens up a can of worms. Do you want to go? Oh, by the way, no KP because we all picked the, uh, the Seahawks to win the game. So there is no KP to be awarded on hole number 10. Does Joe, it carry over to the next week? No, right? it doesn't catch. It's just worth okay. one. It's just worth one. Joe Fan in the Seattle Mariners hat, one of the hats that he promotes on Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter in Vegas. You can uh, pick somebody from the Seahawks-Bucks game, somebody on the Bucks, somebody on the Seahawks and a loss, somebody else in sports, non-sports. You have any tidbits for us? Who was doing some work? How about the Washington Huskies? Oh, Michael the Penix. old Oregon Ducks Michael down Penix. in Eugene. Oh. That was a whole lot of fun. Oh. Really enjoyed watching that game and seeing uh, the Oregon Ducks college football playoff chances just poof. Okay. Zip in air. So what do you Big wanna, win for the Huskies. What do you want to say, the Washington Huskies football team was doing some work. There you go. Brady? Uh, well, I'm going to go a little bit off beat here because I know how much you guys love it when I uh, mentioned my coworkers, but oh, I'm going to do it again. Oh, and not, not what you think. Don't worry. Don't worry. Seth Wickersham is one of uh, ESPN's reporters. He's the best sports reporter that I know. Been on the uh, show. Uh, okay, there you go. He wrote a uh, book. What what book did we have him on to promote? I thought he just he, wrote a book. He wrote a book. Yeah, he, well, he wrote a book. It came out, I think, last October called It's Better to Be Feared. It's about Tom Brady, Belichick, and the Patriots dynasty. I just finished it, and it's fantastic. It, it was another reminder to me of why uh, Seth is the best NFL writer on the planet uh, for my money. And mm-hmm. in addition okay. to that, he has also done a ton of good work on the whole Washington ownership situation with Dan Snyder and how everybody wants him out. The guy is just a, a machine. So uh, the, the whole, you know, his book on Brady was obviously. I was reminded of it as seeing Brady, you know, march down the field and uh, beat the Seahawks to the, in this game on Sunday. But Seth Wickersham uh, has been and continues to do some work. Joe, uh, ruling, do we ever have, we didn't have a rule that says you can't give out doing some work to the same person twice, did we? There's no such rule. Nope. I sit here as we do the note table from sunny South Florida, where on Sunday after watching the Seahawks lose miserably to the Bucks. In Germany, I went out to what they call Hard Rock Stadium to watch the Dolphins and the Browns play. And I was reminded by something I said to you guys earlier. You know, everybody's going to talk about Josh Allen for MVP. Everybody's going to talk about Patrick Mahomes for MVP. Certain people where we sit are asking whether Geno Smith should get votes for MVP. There is a quarterback in Miami, Joe Fan, who came into the day with the best passer rating in the NFL and threw 135 passer rating at the Cleveland Browns. So he will continue to hold that mark. And when they talk about MVP, I just want to bring this up. I'm not saying he should win it, but when they talk about MVP, let me remind you guys of something, something that you both know. That in games that Tua, the quarterback of the Dolphins, has started and completed, the Dolphins are 7-0 and on the season. Mm. 
Now, when they say MVP, that's pretty much MVP. And by the way, in the three games that he either didn't start or didn't play or didn't finish, the Dolphins are 0-3 on the season. So as you guys at ESPN and your fancy numbers and computers and all those great editors get together and decide how to run the world, just remember a little guy, (laughs) a little guy in Miami who's throwing the absolute hell out of the ball with those great receivers and that new coach that Joe likes so much. Just remember him because he should be in the, at the very least through 10 games. If he's not in the conversation, there should be no conversation for MVP. Brady, you're allowed out now. You can come out from the corner. Your discipline is over. Your punishment is over, and you can cover the next Seattle. Seattle. Oh, we have an off week. Are we going to get together, Joe? Are we all going to get together during the bye week? Your call, sir. You're the boss. Okay. You're the captain. Can't go a week without you guys. Somehow, some way. So we'll figure it out. Yeah. Joe Fan at WinBet in Las Vegas. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, guys. And Brady Henderson, ESPN Seahawks insider, when he's allowed out of the boat. Thank you, Brady. Thank you. It's time for a visit. With Lindsay Schwartz, the CEO of Daniel's Broiler, my favorite spot for special occasions. What's going on over there, Lindsay? Hey, Mitch. Great talking to you. Yeah, there's lots going on. Just wrapping up a great remodel at our Bellevue location. We've got Thanksgiving coming up in a few Ooh. weeks. And you know what? I'll even do a plug for Zeke's Pizza, man. We had a uh, we had an office get-together a couple weeks ago. It was amazing. The Dragon Pizza. <laughs> uh, I had never had it before, and it changed my life. Oh. I, I'm, I'm hooked. I need more. Aren't Bring you it. nice to throw in another sponsor in your time? <laughs> I'm here on Mitch Unfiltered. Now, my son is a highfalutin busboy at that Bellevue location, and he keeps telling me about the remodel. Give us more specifics, if you would. Yeah, it's great. You know, we opened that location in 1989, so you and I are old enough to, uh, yeah. well, maybe you weren't in town yet, but it's been around a long time. We do kind of a significant remodel about every 10 years or so, and uh, it was time. We did some really cool things in the bar. The back bar has been redesigned. It's a different look. looks great. And I think the most dramatic thing people will notice is the south side of the restaurant. We elevated part of the floor to improve the view. We opened up some walls. It just is great. So to the south, you can see Mount Rainier. To the southwest, you can see downtown Seattle. We're really happy with it. People should come check it out. And then you mentioned Thanksgiving. Some of our audience might say, isn't it a little early to be talking about Thanksgiving? It's never too early to talk about Thanksgiving at Daniel's Broiler because reservations go so fast. It's the biggest single day every year for you over the course of the calendar year, right? Yeah, that's right. It's become that over the last few years, but we open all four locations at noon. We go noon to eight, do a great three-course meal at Leshy, Lake Union, and Bellevue. Uh, We have turkey, of course, but you could also do prime rib, pork roast, plant-based ravioli, or salmon. And then at uh, at the downtown location, we do a buffet. So it's a little bit different, same basic food, but buffet style. So depending on what you like the best. But yeah, it, it really is the most likely day to sell out that and Valentine's Day. So people should jump on and get reservations online or call whatever's easy. All right. Call the restaurant or go online to danielsbroiler.com. Get your reservations early for Thanksgiving this year at one of the four terrific locations of Daniel's Broiler world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered.
to throw down the sideline. He drops it in for Davis down the sideline. And there's nobody home. One last heave for Bonex. Feeling the rush again. Climbing the pocket and throwing incomplete. The Washington Huskies have upset Oregon. Taco Time Northwest presents the weekly chat. Mitch Unfiltered, episode 214 with Rick Neuheisel. Episode 214, Taco Time Northwest. Always looking for people who love to do some work. And we will identify some people who did some work over the weekend in the world of college football. I'll tell you who was doing some work. Let's just start off with Rick Neuheisel, who normally is waxing poetic. He's doing poems in the studio in New York. But I here I am on the East Coast. I decide on a Saturday, I'm at my mom's condo. I flip on a, on the game. Tennessee's playing uh, who the Mizzou. Hell? Missouri. M- Missouri, yeah. And I, and, I, and I hear this this voice in my back, like a voice from my past in the, in the back <laughs> of my head. I'm like, wait a second. Do they take Neuheisel out of the studio and put him in the booth this week? They kicked me to the curb. That's exactly what happened. Uh, actually, they just wanted Houston nut. My my partners in the studio said, can we just have a Southern gentleman in here for once? And <laughs> so Houston nut took my seat in New York and I got to go down uh, to beloved Neyland Stadium uh, here Beautiful. in the banks of the Tennessee River People uh, and watch the Tennessee volunteers. How about this? The most yards ever. They should want me to do every game. <laughs> 724 yards of offense yesterday uh, in a 66-24 victory over Missouri. So uh, the hype old train, the hype is real. couple of things on that, and I've got far more important matters, but uh, these things are interesting to me, and I, I guess my name is on the title of the show, so I might as well ask them. First of all, Neyland Stadium on the banks of the what? Tennessee River. On the banks of the... T- People like to compare... Very often, the setting at Washington to the setting at Tennessee. I've never been in Knoxville at that stadium. I've actually been in Knoxville and on the campus, but I've never been in that stadium for a football game. Does it remind you of Seattle and Montlake at all or not? I would give the edge to Seattle as a place to quote unquote sailgate, right? Uh, But it is beautiful. And the stadium might be my favorite. It is is vertical. I mean, when you say that I was calling a game from Rocky top, I literally (laughs) was on top. (laughs) Binoculars were a must. I'm just saying, and there's a hundred thousand of your closest friends that are there with you. And whether you like to sing the song Rocky top, you're going to sing the song Rocky (laughs) top. Uh, But it is, it's a fabulous celebration of college football. Mm. Top five atmospheres during a football game top five places if you said now don't don't play to the seattle people if somebody in our audience said rick i want to take my kid to five places to watch a college football game you don't have to do them in order just give me five places rick neyland stadium is absolutely one okay uh bryant denny at alabama absolutely in that number husky stadium all i have to do is show you the film of miami at washington 2000. You can't find better college football than that. They're going to go, why is the film shaking? Because the stadium was shaking. <laughs> That's why the film is shaking. Because yeah. you get that that was off the charts. Rose Bowl on Granddaddy Day. 
on Granddaddy oh, Day. Now, okay. when it's the actual okay. Rose Bowl, no place like it. No place like it. And then I would probably LSU. LSU when when things get going crazy. You skipped Ohio State. You skipped Michigan. You skipped Penn State. Michigan, I've been to. I've never been to Ohio State. Never been. So it's oh. an, I can't throw it in there. What a college football game. We've been talking about it on this podcast a lot. Oh, my. I'm on the East Coast as, as you are into the wee hours of Saturday night. I, I still think the college football games are way too long. They seem to last four hours, all of them anymore, especially with all the passing and all the clock stoppages. But how, And the commercials. They're the paying commercial. for bills. How yep. about that college football game at Autzen Stadium between Washington and Oregon? For the longest time, it looked like Penix who played such a brilliant game, the one mistake he made oh my goodness, was going to exactly. cost them the, the freaking football game, but they were able to overcome it. How about that f- football game for you? It was almost the easiest decision he had all night, too. <laughs> Just throw it away. Throw it away. I mean, it was first, first down. All, you have him rolling away from his throwing arm. Of course. You have him going into the short side of the field. On so first down. On first down. You got three more downs. It's the easiest <laughs> ch- decision that he was probably faced with all evening, and he tried to shove it in there because that's what he is. Well, maybe it was Brock who said, you know, when a guy gets in a zone and he was yeah, in a I heard zone him say on it. Saturday yeah, it night. It was Brock for sure. Okay. When a guy you gets feel in, like you, you feel can, like you can do you're, anything. You're, you're you rolling do hot dice. Let's get go. out of my way. Yeah. 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 So there maybe was but all that. The, even with that being said, I guarantee those plays that where you're rolling out, where those are not reads of a defense. Those are what we call progression reads, which it's one to two to three. Because the defense is all moving with you, right? Yes. And there's somebody, what they call secondary containing, which is now a guy that's not involved in the protection scheme who's going to hit you. So your time is limited. And so it's one to two to three to throw away. He just tried to shove it in there, obviously feeling good. He was a brilliant night by Michael Penix, but just a a very, very, it was going to be a tough pill to swallow if that was going to cost him the game. They could not stop the run. Oregon on that one drive brought Bo Nix out there, and I think they probably discussed it on the sideline. We are just going to run the ball every single play. I think they ran it 15 times in a row on one drive. It was unbelievable. They punched punched (laughs) the Husky run defense right into submission, and they were having their way. And then... Dan Lanning, I promise, didn't get any rest last night because that decision to go for it on fourth and one with a minute and change left with your quarterback on the sideline who had just walked up to you and said, I'm ready to go. And he let fourth and one go. And here's the problem with fourth and one with the new quarterback. Number one, you did it with what we call a zone read exchange. The new quarterback, this uh, Thompson kid, is not going to pull it. He's brand new. He's going to be the safe guy. He's going to hand it off. Everybody in the stadium, including the Husky defense, knows that. And they also know you're not throwing. You're not throwing with a brand new quarterback on fourth and one. You're not going to do that to him. So everybody knew who was getting the ball. And then, of course, the kid slips. Jesus. But to give the ball back almost within one first down of field goal range at 120, that won't go down in Dan Lanning's Hall of Fame, which I'm sure will be a long career. Rick, Kalen DeBoer is eight and two. Yeah. He's Fabulous. gonna be he's gonna beat Colorado to go to nine and two. 
And then he's either going to lose to Wazoo to be nine and three at Wazoo, or he's going to beat Wazoo and be ten and two in his first year since Jimmy Lake and go to a nice bowl game. And, and Michael Penix is just a fabulous college football player. I really hope selfishly that he plays one more year like his 26th season. He's got one more year to come back. I don't know if he will or he won't. I'd love to see him again. I'd love to see DeBoer bring some defensive help in there and somehow slow some people down. But I, I have to ask you, and maybe this you'd say, Mitch, we need a full show to talk about it, but you're an offensive guy. There's something that Kalen DeBoer does to get these wide receivers wide. Oh, yeah, Penix is great, but this scheme... I keep looking at it and saying this guy should be an offensive coordinator in the NFL. This scheme, there are wide receivers, three quarters of the completions that Michael Penix has, and he's great. There's nobody around these guys. What what is the magic? What's the magic potion of of Kalen DeBoer? Okay, Kalen DeBoer comes from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He was an NAIA coach years ago, winning national championships there. He's risen up. He found Michael Penix at Indiana as the offensive coordinator. The two of them, if you go back and look at Penix's numbers as a as with the board well there, he was a 68% passer. Well After that, he went well under under 60. Uh DeBoer goes to Fresno. They find each other again at Washington. In in short, the scheme, it's a lot like the Rams. There's there's going to be tight splits, constricted splits, whether it's a three by one or two by two, two receivers to one side or three receivers to one side, but they get in constricted. So they cross hemispheres. If you draw a line right down the ball, down to the goal line to the left is one hemisphere to the right is one hemisphere. When you cross over the defense has a tough time accommodating because they count you from outside in and they, they, cover in hemispheres. So when you go from one side to another, there has to be great communication for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's one thing he does. Then he goes in a lot of three by one. And we saw both teams score touchdowns on this play because what happens in three by ones, a lot of defensive coordinators say, we're going to lock the furthest receiver from the ball. Going to lock him. Just the corner plays him man to man. And now we're going to play in and out quarters on numbers two and three. And in so doing, when number three releases vertically, the third, the, the slot releases vertically and then runs across the field, crossing hemispheres, you have a one-on-one -on -one post on that slot versus a safety. And that safety is in harm's way. And we saw touchdown after touchdown after touchdown it's on that play. They, they're, they're just out-personnelling you. They get a wide out on your safety who's in there because you can run the ball. And your quarterbacks are run threat, although Penix hasn't been much in that way. But but Bo Nix is certainly a run threat. Nix now has 14 touchdowns on the ground. So it's it's really complicated to get the right people to cover these routes. And that's why you're finding this kind of success. So before we leave the Penix story, and you don't know, you're there and, and he's here. In college basketball, we get this every once in a while. A really, really good college basketball player gets a point. Nate Robinson. Right. Nate Robinson got to a point where he had one more year of eligibility at Washington. He wasn't considered to be a lottery pick, but his thinking was, hey, I, I can't make myself any better than I am. And I can't do anything college basketball wise next year to make me any higher in people's minds. Michael Penix might be at that point. He might just be a terrific college football player. If he comes back next year, what's he going to do? At best, he's going to do what he's doing this year, which is fantastic. So he might say, 
Whatever I am, I am. I am that now. So why wait a year? Let's find out. Let's go see if I can back up some quarterback in the NFL. What do you think he's going to do? What what should he do? This is a different set of facts presented to Michael Penix than any similar situation in previous years. And here's why. You have C.J. Stroud. You have Bryce Young. You have a number of first-round quarterbacks. Hendon Hooker might be in that company. Uh, at the beginning of the season, the kid Will Levis at Kentucky was considered that kind of guy. There's a number of bodies that are thought to be first-round caliber draft choices. That might push Michael Penix further down in the first round. So he might have more uh, willingness to listen to ideas about staying. The second thing is, and I know this for a fact, Mitch, that this is going on right now, the inner circles of these big-time quarterbacks are having conversations with the university about staying if you create the right NIL package. Uh-huh. It's, in essence, you know, getting paid to stay and play college football sure. rather than going and playing sure. uh, NFL football for pay. And if you're getting the right number and you're you know, basically gauging that against where you think you'll be picked, it might make a lot of sense for Michael Penix to say. But he's a year old. I mean, he's not a young guy to begin with in college football. Well, in Neither NFL is Hennon Hooker. Hennon okay. Hooker's okay. 24 years old. It okay. didn't hurt Hennon Hooker to be 24 in this game. Okay. You know, Michael Penix to have another year. And by the way, everybody wants the cheap quarterback in the NFL. So when you come out, the higher you are, the better off you are. Quick hitters for you. The Oregon loss to Washington in a fabulous game that we've been talking about. That's got to really hurt USC, doesn't it? The fact that now USC can't run the table and beat an Oregon team that was in position to go to the college football playoff. It, it has to have lingering and, 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 and a domino effect to the rest of the Pac-12. Potentially, but I think USC is still in position to run the table and get to the playoff. Number one, because they're USC. There's Cachet, Lincoln Riley, the Trojans, and they get Notre Dame, who won again. They get Notre Dame, they get UCLA, who's still ranked despite that Terrible performance against Arizona. Right. And they get, uh, hopefully, an Oregon or Utah team. Utah, they get to avenge. Uh, Oregon, they get to beat a team that's thought of uh, in a big way. Okay, but let me go back to something we've talked about for the last few weeks. We could be seeing a situation where we've got Georgia, Ohio State, or Michigan. Or both. Well, I, I, I want to come back to that. Okay. So, okay. So, so let's say Georgia, the Ohio State-Michigan survivor. All right. right. Let's say TCU does its job the next couple of weeks. Okay. So there's three. And now you're down to three teams. You've got a one loss Tennessee team potentially that doesn't play in the SEC championship game. You've got right. a one loss Ohio State or Michigan that doesn't that finishes the bride's made to the that other. That didn't the, survive. That yes. didn't survive. And then you've got a one-loss USC team potentially that runs the table. If you're looking at those three possibilities, Tennessee not in the SEC championship game, Ohio State-Michigan loser not in the Big Ten championship game, and then USC, a one-loss team that did get to the Pac-12 championship game and won it, and you've got to choose one of those three, that's really hard. That's really it's difficult. Very difficult. Yep. And it really will come down to what kind of game the uh, is played in the Midwest there. If it's a you know overtime thriller, someone wins on a field goal, I think both are in. If it's a showing like Michigan bludgeons them, even though they're at Ohio State, right. does what they did to them a year ago, uh, then Ohio State would be out and Tennessee would be in. In that scenario, it'll be hard for the Trojans.
Trojans need TCU to lose. Two orders of business, and that's why I was saying at the beginning, I think the Oregon loss to Washington, USC needed, Oregon and USC needed each other to really, to set up a a blockbuster Pac-12 where a lot of people were watching it, USC, Oregon, an elimination game. You know, they needed that, and that kind of goes by the wayside. All right, we got two orders of business, and I'll let you go. First of all, your pick, I will come back to the pick because you you hit it again. You're 70% now, right? Seven come and three. On. Seven and three. Seventy percent. What would Bob say? What would Bob Quit. say? Quit. Put the dice <laughs> down. Put the craps dice down. Now listen, before we Taco Time Northwest deserves its portion of this show. And yes. they salute everybody. They want to know who's doing some work. They salute everybody who does some work. In fact, they're always looking to add to their team at tacotimenw.com. And I have one, and you've got one, but you always get the choice. And last week, you crossed us up. You won the I toss. I crossed you up, and I took the ball. You took the, ball. Took the ball. Are you taking I'm the ball? I'm taking the ball again this All week. All right, okay. Listen, we've already talked about him. Michael Penix was absolutely off the charts when he absolutely had to be. He'll endear himself into the hearts of Husky fans forever because nothing pleases them more than beating Oregon. And if you get a cherry on top by doing it at Autzen Stadium. So Penix was fabulous. 400 plus yards passing. uh, Just a genius performance. Congratulations. But but the guy that I really want to highlight here, and I'm going off the script. Sure, for taco time. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the Ohio State uh, Indiana, Indiana game. game. A little it bit. It was lopsided. Yeah. Okay. A little bit. Late in the game, C.J. Stroud threw his fifth touchdown pass to a kid by the name of Cameron Babb. Cameron Babb has one catch on the season. It was this one. It was for eight yards and a touchdown. But you didn't know that Cameron Babb's a team captain for the Buckeyes. No. You didn't know that Cameron Babb has endured four, count them, four ACL surgeries. Oh. This poor kid could not stay healthy. Oh. But he's one of the great young men on the team, such to the fact that they vote him captain. And there he was getting out on the field against Indiana, running a little goal line comeback out. And Cameron Babb was doing some work. See, that's... I think about all that rehab, all those deals where the normal kids just say, I, this is too much, coach. I'm done. He's out there. And you should see Ryan Day, hands in the air for Cameron Babb. Doing some work. Taco time. Doing some work, man, Cameron Babb. And somewhere, Robbie Tonkin and the Tonkin family of Taco Time is saying, that's the essence New Heisel has it. He I finally it got it. That's the <laughs> essence of who's doing some more Cameron Babb. And you're going to make me, no wonder you took the ball. I've got no chance. <laughs> I have no chance now to, to, to match that. I can't. Match that, I can't. But let me tell you something. The Alabama Crimson Tide and Ole Miss. This was Saban against Kiffin, was it not? It was. It was on CBS, right? It was. Did and, you see Kiffin's tweets about his granddad coming to town? I did is not see sleep that. In, is he going to sleep with us? <laughs> I did not see that. But here's what I did see for so who was doing some work. There is a CBS affiliate in Bowling Green, Kentucky, Rick Neuheisel. All right. Who has Ole Miss was lining up an opportunity to throw the ball into the end zone one last time to pull the game out of the hat. The CBS affiliate in Bowling Green, Kentucky, had had enough, and they they left the game. 
They cut the game off before the final couple of plays so they could run an episode of Funny You Should Ask at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. The Heidi game. (laughs) It's the equivalent of the Heidi game. Ladies and gentlemen, whoever it was that was at the controls of Bowling Green, Kentucky CBS affiliate, was not only doing some work, but it will be the last doing some work that that guy or gal does. So uh, that's too good. That is too good. That is too good. Oh my. Oh my. Which brings us to USC minus what? 34. You laid the lumber last week, right? I, I listen, I just, and you know what they had after the end of the first quarter, they had eight yards. They were down three to two. They had eight yards of total <laughs> offense after the first quarter, and they would go on to score 55. They lost their great uh, running back, didn't they? They lost uh, Die. Yeah, they yeah. lost their kid, uh, Travis Die, um, which is unfortunate, but uh, hopefully they'll play well against UCLA. But there's, you asked for a pick this week. Yeah. Well, we can we quit. Go, we can quit. We, no. Bob, <laughs> Bob is asking me to stop. Uh, I don't even know what the line is, Mitch. Look it up. All right. I have to look it up. What are the Trojans favored by this week in the Rose Bowl? Wow. You're going right into your own backyard. This is I too emotional. This is like too emotional. You shouldn't Zach be. Zach emo- Charbonnet and this Bruin team are going to have their way with this defense. You know not to get emotional when it comes to <laughs> I the I understand. Pick. This I is understand. very dangerous. That's this why is- I stayed away from the Huskies last week, but it was. I, I knew 13 and a half was too much. What do we got here? Okay. USC and UCLA at, uh, it looks like five, five o'clock, PM. five yep. o'clock. USC is laying three points with, how about this over under 74 points is the over under. And I thought 70 for the Washington, Oregon game was a high number. All right, here's, here's what we're doing. Points. What are we doing? Here, here, what are we doing? We're going the over. I'm going to get off the emotion. We're taking the over over seventy four the, uh, the victory bell game there in Los Angeles, and it won't it will it will will might go through it before we start the fourth quarter. You think they're going to go over seventy four? They're going over seventy four. Okay. What I know for sure, I don't know that he's gonna. I don't know that he's gonna win this one. He went. <laughs> he went to a very emotional place, which everybody in Vegas. I want to take the Bruins. You. I thought I thought I'd be getting five or six. No, but, UCLA uh, being the home team. No, yeah, there's no home in Los Angeles. There'll yeah. be every bit as many Trojan fans in there. Maybe it's the running back being out. Maybe, maybe let me just say this. Yeah, let me just say this. Yeah. 74 is in jeopardy. They're going to go <laughs> past it before they start the fourth quarter. <laughs> All right. Uh, every single week on Mitch Unfiltered, you hear the unfiltered analysis brought to you by Taco Time Northwest of Rick Neuheisel. Safe travels home. All the travels that you're going to be doing over the next 10 or 14 days. We can't go into that. And we'll talk to you next week, wherever you might be next week for us. Look forward to it, Mitch. Take care, baby. Zeke's Pizza President Dan Black. Dapper Dan Black is back with us. How are you, Dan? I'm doing good. We're back to Dapper. We're back to Dapper. And it's the heart of football season. And when I think of football season, pizza goes well with watching football. You guys have specials at Zeke's. It's a a good time of the year, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I think I'm like everybody else, and it's my favorite time of year for sports. And lots of football all the time, fantasy football, Seahawks. Zeke's is a key part of that for me, I think, like a lot of people. And whether I'm posting up at the bar watching a game or, Mm -hmm. or getting it delivered. Yeah, there's specials going on all the time. It depends on location. So the best thing to do is just jump onto our website, find your location, and see what's going on. A little behind the scenes. 
scenes here with the recording of these chats. I said to Dan before we started, what's going on? And you told me it's fresh hop season. And Mitch Levy said, what the hell is fresh hop season? <laughs> Mitch Levy, not a beer guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, for beer geeks and just beer enthusiasts and people that are paying attention to the Northwest local beer scene, fresh hops, a special time of year. You know, it's harvest season and that includes hops, which is one of the main ingredients of beer, particularly for people that like IPAs and stuff. And so what fresh hop beers are is they harvest the hops and right off the vine, they throw them into the brew kettle. And so ah. these beers have a really hoppy taste. They taste really fresh. They're seasonal. They're only around really for a few weeks. And so people get excited about them and we're right in the heart of it right now. And Zeke's does beer as good as anybody, particular local Northwest beer. And so you can go into most Zeke's right now and find three of the four best fresh hop beers in the Northwest. And that's not the only thing that people are excited for. Kraken hockey has returned for a second season it's underway and that brings up belltown for pre and post game celebrations yes oh yeah the belltown zeke's bar is cracking headquarters for sure uh we fill up before every game it's super festive and fun everybody's got their cracking gear on we've got great beer going pizza and beer are a great way to fuel up for the cracking so yeah no we love it it's super fun when the cracking are going and the answer to the trivia question the first ever out of state location of Zeke's Pizzas coming soon. Boise, Idaho. We love Zeke's. Great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Episode 214 Hot Shots got other stuff segment. What do you got on your list? I know you've been staying up every night wondering who would be inducted into the 2022 National Toy Hall of Fame. Here's a quick update. Masters of the Universe, Light Bright, and The Top. Who knew the top was going to make it into the, I suppose it should, right? They've been playing with tops for like, they said a thousand years. They, you know, so congratulations to He-Man, Light Bright and the Jesus. top for making the Hall of Fame. So there you go. Is this an annual sleep. thing? Because I feel like you bring this up more than it once a year. It does feel like more you than t- annual, doesn't it? I swear to you, I thought the same thing. Like no. I just talked about, maybe because it's so interesting to you that you oh, get you, so excited when no, I bring it up that no. it feels like it's happening. I think more I more. have it. I think that you bring it up one time when the nominations come out and then you bring it up a second time when they make the official determination of who's going to the Hall of Fame. So I think you talk about it at least twice a year. All right, real quick. You see the ESPN announcer that broke the Guinness World Record for the longest cornhole throw? No. When he to- he tossed the little cornfield. You know what cornhole is, right? Everyone knows course, what cornhole is. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fantastic at it. Yeah. Oh, I'm so good at it. Um, he, <laughs> I'm good at. I think I'm good at everything. But he he threw one 76 feet into a hole into the little wooden target. Marty Smith attempted the record ahead of Saturday's football game between Georgia and University of Tennessee. Pretty damn impressive. Mm. 76 feet. That That is no joke. I think we probably should have started the other stuff segment with the Mariners news of the week. Hot shot. Go on. Well, Mariners' Jerry DePoto is a GM. He's a general manager. Therefore, he was at the GM meetings in Las Vegas last week, and he came mm-hmm. out and had a lot to say, some interesting things about our, our beloved home team nine that we're hoping will take a step forward this offseason and make yep. a splash in free agency and help the roster. Well, he says a couple things that were interesting, not very lovable, but interesting. Uh, first of all, no to the $19.25 million qualifying offer for Mitch Hanniger. So Mitch Hanniger is now an official free agent. That does not mean he won't be back with the Mariners because DePoto hinted that they're going to try to work out a better deal, a more team-friendly deal, and a deal that Hanniger likes 
to bring him back for the Mariners, but he will not offer him the $19.25 million, and I don't blame him. Everybody loves Mitch Hanniger. Everybody would like to see Mitch Hanniger back on the Mariners under the right set of circumstances. But look, he's yeah. an injury-prone player. He misses yep. a lot of time. You can expect that he'll miss time next year due to injury. So I don't I don't hold it against the Mariners that they're not going to pay him $20 million on the qualifying offer. I feel the exact same way. I was kind of hoping for a little more out of him during the playoffs. And yeah, I I, I think I'm, I'm okay if they don't want to pay him that as well. Other things that Jerry DePoto said... He doubled down on his comments about J.P. Crawford staying at shortstop, which really irritates a lot of Mariners fans Hmm. because the four or five big name free agents, big money free agents that everybody thought the Mariners would be in on one of them, they're shortstops. There's like five shortstops that are going to get 25 to 35 million dollars a year in free agency. And everybody thought, oh, one of these mega free agent shortstops would fit perfect with the Mariners in the middle of their lineup, move J.P. Crawford to second base. But according to Jerry, and he said this once before, he doubled down now, quote, there are a lot of guys that have played together, and that means when you're trying to build a lasting, cohesive, forward-moving, sustainable team. So J.P. is our shortstop, is what he said. For now. <laughs> That's probably he what he's say thinking. For now. He did not say <laughs> no, for now. No, he didn't, but he's thinking that, I'm sure, right? Now, I mean... Well, if you're if you're like me... You're a conspiracy theorists, and you've come you've come up with this this explanation. The ownership has told him we're not giving you twenty five to thirty five million dollars a year to sign one of these guys because we already did Julio, and we already did the pitcher that you got from Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So you better come up with a good plan that makes it sound like that it's not about money. This is a perfect explanation. We like J.P. Crawford as our shortstop, so we're not going to pursue one of these guys ownership's way of saying they're not on board spending, you know, $175 million for one of these shortstops. Yeah. Their, their, their debit card is still, you know, blinking red because it's uh they've spent, they've been using it a lot. It's still kind of hot. So maybe they want it to cool down a little bit. I could see that. A lot of Mariners fans are not happy with the, those remarks by Jerry. And then the other thing that people aren't happy with is he's standing by his man, Jesse Winker after that shit sandwich season that yeah. Winker had for the Mariners He's counting on him coming back from injury and Mariners fans have given up on Winker, but not the GM who acquired him. And I think that that's the important part of all of this. You've got a GM here who went out and made the trade for Winker. He was an all-star in Cincinnati. And I don't think there are many GMs that are just going to run from that after one bad year. They're going to exhaust it because it makes them look bad. It makes Jerry DePoto's acquisition of Winker look bad, even though he got Suarez in the deal, which is pretty good. He says Jesse Winker is still a part of our plans and could be a corner outfielder on opening day for the Seattle Mariners. Most of us Mariner fans think they need two corner outfielders and they need a new middle infielder, a new shortstop. These guys that can hit in the middle of the lineup to extend the lineup a little bit, deepen the lineup a little bit and catch up on the Houston Astros. Yeah, it's always nice to get baseball players who can hit. I think that's always been an important part of acquiring players, guys that can hit. That would be nice, yes. I got to give you an update on, you remember the couple from Utah that wanted to have one more child, but his wife wasn't able to? They were desperate to have another child. So they asked the 56-year-old grandma to step in and act as a surrogate. (laughs) I do, yes. Well, she gave birth to her own granddaughter, Hannah, on November 2nd and revealed to People Magazine that the nine-hour labor to bring Hannah into the world was a spiritual experience. Oh, my God. Just a bizarre story of a 56-year-old giving birth to her granddaughter. 
Now, hold on. Only a in Utah. <laughs> yeah. Are we sure she gave birth to her granddaughter or she gave birth to her daughter? Well, no, she acted as a, a surrogate. So I know. it was. It, yeah. <laughs> Do I have to explain how this works? No, because you, you could you can hire a stranger to carry your baby and it's half you and half your spouse. Right. And they, the, the surrogate just acts as like the oven of just going to, oh, you know, keep it warm and okay. give the birth. So, yeah, because it's not the egg and it's not the sperm. Yeah, but 56-year-old, and it worked. It's unbelievable. So congratulations. Welcome to the world, Hannah. Jesus. you got a bizarre story to tell the rest of your life. That your grandma actually gave birth to you. I know. Uh. Vin Scully, who knew that, that being the most famous play-by-play person of all time paid so well? You see that his house is up. It hit the market last month. $15 million house really? that Vin Scully was limited. Well, he, pro- I mean, he, pro- he probably owned it for 50 years. Yeah. Probably just kept adding on to it. It's in Hidden Hill. Uh, yeah, uh, Hidden Hills is where it is. Okay. Yeah, seven bedroom, uh, seven bedroom, nine bathroom palace on two acres. All the bells and whistles, pool, spa, putting green, oversized chef's kitchen, game room, wet bar, and outdoor kitchen. Who doesn't need an outdoor kitchen, right? It also comes with a guest house and a six car garage. So <laughs> good to be Vince Coley. Holy crap! I had no idea they made that kind of money. One of the most disliked guys in sports, Greg Norman, appears to be out. In Live Golf, Live Golf is pursuing ex-TaylorMade executive and current Taco Bell CEO Mark King to replace Greg Norman, the Saudi-backed circuit's current CEO, according to reports. So they want the taco guy to come in and run Live Golf, and Greg Norman is out. The beloved Greg Norman is out. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sure he he didn't rub somebody the wrong way with something he said, did he? I mean, that's just not his style. Who didn't he uh. rub the wrong way? I hate social media, says my friend Jennifer Aniston. I'm not good at it. It's torture for me. The reason I went on Instagram was to launch my line. Then the pandemic hit and we didn't launch. So I was just stuck being on Instagram. It doesn't come naturally to me. I want out. I want out of all social media. <laughs> Why do I feel for her on that? I know. I know. I kind of want out, too. I, I mean, honestly, like if, we're if trapped. We, we can't, can't get out. We're trapped. We're totally stuck. Yep. We are held hostage by social media. I'm, I'm with her. It's awful. Uh, Longtime Pennsylvania state representative Anthony, Anthony Tony DeLuca. He won in an election day landslide, which has to sting for his opponent because DeLuca is actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> the late state rep. He got 85 percent of the votes in Wednesday's midterm election, despite dying in October from a battle with lymphoma. I mean, a man is dead and we're laughing, but holy Toledo, uh, his opponent couldn't beat a dead person. So uh, they, I guess they didn't have time to like reprint updated ballots. So everyone voted for him anyway. God. The natural segue to that is to our RIPs and then your headlines hot shot for this episode 214. And I've got a handful of kind of interesting. I don't want to say interesting RIPs. That sounds terrible. Yeah, I got a couple. I got, I got a couple. I wonder if we have the same person. Do you have Mehran Karimi Nasseri on your list? The airport fella? Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. I saw the movie. It's like one of the only movies I've ever seen. Uh, I saw the movie The (laughs) Terminal with Tom Hanks where he lives in the airport. Yeah, inspired by this man. Yes. I guess it was inspired by Mehran Karimi Nasseri, a political refugee who died of a heart attack at the age of 77, and he's lived in airports for so many years. Would you like to know where he died of a heart attack? Sure. 
Terminal 2F. <laughs> God, so weird. Yeah, I mean, so wasn't he like, he was like kind of stuck in limbo and I guess the airports are, are just sort of a free-for-all. They're not really, I don't know. I, I don't know. I there don't was know some the loophole that he fell into that he could just, yeah, he was in like legal limbo because he didn't have residency papers and and then later just said, I kind of like it. I think I'm just going to stay here. Nobody cared. Well, I think I he mean, died he, at pa- in Paris's airport at age uh, 77, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he slept on a red plastic bench, made friends with the airport workers, showered in staff facilities, writing in his diary and read magazines. And part of me's kind of jealous of that life. It actually sounds kind of awesome <laughs> in a weird way. Just sitting there doing nothing. Um, and then my, I have another one you probably have is uh, the comedian Gallagher. Yes, but I was going to go yeah. somewhere before Gallagher. But go ahead. Go you ahead. Got, no, you go Gallagher. 76 years old. There's actually a tie in with Gallagher and, and one of the other RIPs. So famously known for smashing watermelons as part of his act. I never thought he was funny. Yeah, I don't don't think you're alone on that one. Um, He'd been in ill health for a while. He had a few heart attacks over the years. He started working as a comedian after college. And then he like a lot of comedians at that time got his big break after appearing on which show? Which uh, show made every comedian in the Johnny 70s Car- and 80s? Johnny there Carson. you go. Yeah, that's right. 1975 showing off his prop humor and became a pretty popular and recognizable comedian. So his trademark bit was the sledgematic, where he'd use a large mallet to destroy stuff. And yeah, I, I didn't think it was hilarious, but he made a nice living for himself. I never real quick. I, I, I think I told you this, but so he has a brother that looks exactly like him. OK, yeah. so he told his brother, look, I got a whole bunch of jokes and stuff that I don't use. So if you want to go out and be Gallagher too, make a living, <laughs> use all the stuff that I don't use. That's totally cool with me. Yeah. It's helping his brother out, right? It's nice of him. Yeah. So what does his brother do? He goes out, calls himself Gallagher and does his exact act, completely ripping him off. And he had to like <laughs> sue his brother to stop. <laughs> God, no, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what's the term? No, no good. Whatever goes on, whatever. No I mean, good holy deed goes on. Good, uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Whatever that I I mean, God, you try to do yeah. something nice for your brother. And he yeah. just, that that's, that's what happens. But anyway, okay. I just thought that's such a funny part of his life. So Gallagher performed on the circuit, stand up circuit. Maybe the most influential person in in comedy club history also passed away this past week. Bud Friedman. Do you know Bud Friedman? Oh, sure. Yeah. Bud Friedman. Yeah. What did he own? The comedy club pioneer who founded the original improv in New York in 1963. He gave early career breaks to Jay Leno, Robert Klein, Bette Midler, Richard Pryor, Andy Kaufman. Died of heart failure at the age of 90. Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Bud Freeman, 90 years old. So he's connected. I'm sure Gallagher and, and Bud Freeman are kind of connected. I've got a couple of no others. Question. Or one other, actually. Somebody that I really liked and admired as I was watching sports growing up. The name Fred Hickman. Do you remember Fred Hickman? That sounds familiar, yeah. So Fred Hickman was the Polish sports broadcaster who anchored the news and highlights on CNN with Nick Charles. Sports Tonight with Fred oh, Hickman yeah, and yeah, Nick Charles. Right. He passed away last week. He was 66. He was ah. diagnosed with cancer in February and lost his fight this past week. One of the real true gentlemen, as I understand it, in the world of sports and sports broadcasting, Fred Hickman was 66 years old, Hotshot. And that Rest brings in us, peace to him. That brings us to headlines. A 20-year-old Rubik's Cube enthusiast in Britain broke a Guinness World Record by solving 6,931 of the puzzles in 24 hours. What's next for this young man? A lifetime of virginity. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tiffany Trump was married over the weekend and her father, Donald, you know, remember Donald Trump? He gave a toast at her daughter's wedding saying, cherish every moment together. Join me in wishing the happy couple a lifetime of joy. And now allow me the next 30 minutes to tell you how the 2020 election was stolen from me. Which I'm sure happened. Well, All right. With the help, with the help of doctors, a French woman literally grew a nose on her arm to prepare for a nose oh, transplant. Stop it. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't do it. If Mitch Levy oh. ever has this procedure, he'd have to grow one on his thigh. <laughs> Hurricane Nicole may have unearthed a Native American burial site dating back hundreds of years on a Florida beach where six skulls and other smaller bones turned up. Great. Now poltergeists and Native American zombies could cause havoc, but hey, it's Florida, so who would even notice? And finally, an Ohio woman yesterday copped to clobbering a female acquaintance in the face with a 10-pound log of ground beef during a confrontation in a Walmart in Cleveland. Turns out, even in a Walmart in Cleveland, it's illegal to beat your meat. Really? Nothing? By the way, I swear, I read this story, and I thought I did another one about a woman hitting someone with one of those big 10-pound logs of ground beef, but I guess there were two incidents like that. Why is it that we cannot, on Mitch Unfiltered, tell anything (laughs) about a nose? Why, why, when the word nose comes up, why does it have to ultimately end in my lap? Explain that to me. Can we, I'm going to challenge you. I want you to do a headline in the next few weeks on Mitch Unfiltered, either on 216 or 217 or 218. Do a headline that involves a schnoz where you don't (laughs) go with the low-hanging fruit of Mitch Levy. Can you please do that for me? I'd be doing a disservice to the listeners who love my shots at you. I mean, I I don't know if I can do that or not, but I will try. I'll try. I'll find a nose story and I'll see if I can get creative without bringing you up. Yes, that'll be my my goal. And you took a shot at my state of Florida, which I thought we determined was uh, out of bounds on Mitch Unfiltered. That's against the yeah, I thought, rules. I thought Florida Florida people, like I couldn't do one about a Florida, but the whole state, I mean, come on, you guys come are on. unearthing American, you know, Native American burial sites. I got to bring this up. Hurricane Nicole, I swear to God, I dated a girl named Hurricane Nicole in college. <laughs> when, I, when I heard that, I was like, really, Hurricane Nicole? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 214, my ode to Bobby Ewing and J.R. Ewing. Uh, is now officially with Hotshot Scott in the books.